are now tuned in to this week's episode of our podcast. Today, we are going to interview some of the greatest and most influential minds in our field. By sharing our collective expertise, we will show you how to harness, control, and use your own skill set to achieve ultimate success and live the life you want. And now, please welcome your host. Thanks for listening. This message comes from NPR sponsor Spectrum Business. Small businesses don't have time for nonsense. That's why Spectrum Business is no nonsense, just business. They offer fast, reliable internet at a great value. Call 855-872-5588. Hey, it's Manoush here. With Valentine's Day this week, maybe you've got love on the brain. And whether you're single, dating, married, divorced, or otherwise, we all have people in our lives who matter to us. But those relationships, they require work, a lot of work. And so today, we're spending the hour with therapist Esther Perel to explore how we can all create stronger bonds with partners, friends, family members, even coworkers. This episode is called Building Resilient Relationships, and it originally aired in September. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. Our job now is to dream big. Delivered at TED conferences. To bring about the future we want to see. Around the world. To understand who we are. From those talks, we bring you speakers and ideas that will surprise you. You just don't know what you're going to find. Challenge you. We truly have to ask ourselves, like, why is it noteworthy? And even change you. I literally feel like I'm a different person. Yes. (laughs) Do you feel that way? Ideas worth spreading. From TED and NPR. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and today on the show, Building Resilient Relationships with Esther Perel. People want to feel alive in their relationships, and they want it in their friendships, they want it at work, they want it in their romantic relationships. It's essential. Esther is a couples and family therapist, an author, a speaker. And the host of the podcast, Where Should We Begin and How Is Work? Over the past four decades, Esther has become one of the foremost experts on relationships. And with all the stress on families and partners and coworkers right now, we thought Esther was exactly the right person to talk to. If I can help people with their relationships... Hopefully, I also can change their lives. She investigates big questions like, what are the expectations in a relationship? How do people create trust? How do they deal with conflict? How do they collaborate or compete? How do they build intimacy? How do they communicate with each other? All of these things. And especially right now, relationships are being tested in all kinds of new ways. That prolonged uncertainty that we are experiencing is accompanied with a sense of grief and loss. Not because we lose people only, but because we have lost the world that we knew. Crisis can push people apart, but it can also bring them together. 
That's how Esther's parents found each other. I grew up in Antwerp, uh, in Belgium, in a community that was all Jewish Holocaust survivors. Uh, my parents came from Poland to Belgium. Uh, they both were the sole survivors of their entire family. Um, they both spent years in concentration camps and mm. then were five years illegal refugees in Belgium as well, before I am born. Um, and my parents would never have married if it wasn't for the war. Um, my mother came from an educated, aristocratic, Hasidic family. My father was basically illiterate. Um, they we did not belong to the same worlds. My parents are circumstantial marriages like many post-war marriages. I've lost everything. You've lost everything. I'm alone. You're alone. Let's get married. But my dad adored my mother. He worshipped her. He admired her. And she loved being admired. <laughs> so it worked very well. But their view was, you need to want to stay together and you need to make compromises. I mean, as you said, it sounds like a lot of survivors had real trauma in common. That's what brought them together. But did it also keep those relationships going too? A lot of survivors after the war and after they had kind of ended the initial stage of rebuilding and locating themselves and creating a new lives and having children right away to prove that they're still human, would look at each other and say, we have nothing in common. Hmm. What am I doing here? But they would never divorce again because they couldn't bear the loss one more time. Right. The luck I had is that when my parents would look at each other, they actually shared a tremendous amount. They loved life. They had a joie de vivre and they, lived, they rejoiced in the things that the other one liked to do and went to do for themselves. Esther's parents transformed their trauma into a partnership that celebrated life. Together, they became even more resilient. And right now, many of us are looking at our lives and wondering, will this time destroy or strengthen our relationships? So today on the show, we're spending the hour with Esther Perel and her ideas about how we can all build long-lasting relationships in romance, our families, and even at work. So, Esther, you've been a therapist for decades now. But back in 1986, that is when you actually shifted your whole focus to work with couples. Why did you decide to do that? Like, what was going on that you felt couples should be the thing you work on? Yes, yes. Couples therapy became a, a field that flourished because the meaning of the couple inside the family really transformed. When marriage was a no-exit enterprise then it didn't really matter if the couple did that well or not. Mm. I mean, it mattered a great deal, but it didn't matter for the survival of the family. People stayed together miserably if they had to. Once people could leave, the expectations and the demands from their intimate relationships completely changed. And I found that transition really fascinating. I also found couples therapy an endlessly fascinating practice and something that would take years to become good at and a science that was proliferating at the same time. 
And so I realized that there was an energy in a room with a couple. You could actually mm. see the change happening in front of you if you help people to connect or to open up or to, to be vulnerable with each other or to speak truth to each other or to apologize to each other. I thought, this is a full human theater. It's the best theater in town. <laughs> and uh, I became very, very excited about doing couples work. And then how that moved to sexuality was same thing. I mean, it's also because the meaning of sexuality, the expectations around our sexual lives, the the, sh the shift from you know women's rights to women's pleasure, to, to the democratization of contraception, of course, um, all these things began to change the meaning of sex in relationships. You know, sexual satisfaction became linked with marital happiness. So your first TED Talk was actually about this very topic, arguing that relationships and sex are not separate things. And in fact, sex is a key factor when it comes to building a resilient partnership. And so let's turn to your 2013 TED Talk, which is called The Secret to Desire in a Long-Term Relationship. So why does good sex so often fade, even for couples who continue to love each other as much as ever? And why does good intimacy not guarantee good sex, contrary to popular belief? Or the next question would be, can we want what we already have? That's the million-dollar question, right? And why is the forbidden so erotic? What is it about transgression that makes desire so potent? And why does sex make babies and babies spell erotic disaster in couples? <laughs> it's kind of the fatal erotic blow, isn't it? And when you love, how does it feel? And when you desire, how is it different? These are some of the questions that are at the center of my exploration on the nature of erotic desire and its concomitant dilemmas in modern love. So I travel the globe, and what I'm noticing is that everywhere where romanticism has entered, there seems to be a crisis of desire. A crisis of desire as in owning the wanting, desire as an expression of our individuality, of our free choice, of our preferences, of our identity, desire that has become a central concept as part of modern love and individualistic societies. Oh my goodness, listening to that, Esther, reminds me uh, of a conversation I had with a colleague a few years ago, and she, she told me that she and her husband were splitting, and I was like, oh, I had no idea that you guys were unhappy. And she said, oh, we're, we're not unhappy. I think we just could be each happier. And I was like, oh, oh, you're not leaving because <laughs> they had a perfectly fine marriage, but they were kind of wanted to know what else was out there. Is that what you're referring to as this crisis of desire? I would say that when I hear the statement of your friend, what stands out for me is that for most of history, marriage was a one time for life. Um, then as we got the possibility of leaving and divorce became legalized, Often people left when they were really miserable. And today, we don't leave because we are unhappy necessarily, but we also leave because we think we could be happier. Mm. And that is how consumerism has entered modern <laughs> marriage. When I wow. think about 
the crisis of desire, I think about it slightly differently. What attracted me to the subject of sexuality after working for almost 20 years in the cultural arena, I just felt like I'm ready to dis- explore something new. And, um, and I stumbled upon sexuality. It was absolutely not planned. Um, and I stumbled about it actually around the Clinton scandal mm. because what interested me was how sexuality in every society, in every culture, becomes the place where the most archaic, traditional, rooted aspects of that culture are lodged, or on the other end, where the most progressive, radical, transformative changes take place. Mm. It is a window into a society through its beliefs, its attitudes, its behavior, its research or lack thereof, like here, around sexuality. Um, And then I began to notice one of the big changes in relationships, marriage or committed relationships, is that for most of history, sexuality was primarily a production enterprise. You Mm. wanted eight children so that they could work the land and some of them were not surviving, so you needed many of them. And they were an economic asset. And it was a woman's marital duty. And nobody really asked if you liked it, if you wanted it, if it felt good, you basically did it. And it was the doing of it that mattered. And that changed then to a next model, which was belonging and romance um, inside marriage. Um, And marriage literally shifted from an economic enterprise to an affectionate, romantic enterprise. Mm. And then we went from the service economy to in marriage to the identity economy in marriage, which is that you're going to help me become the best version of myself. So now, if you only have a few children, you need a motivation, a reason to stay sexually involved with the partner for years on end. And that's where desire becomes part of it. It's no longer what I should do, so it becomes what I want to do. And because it was part of premarital sex, which is quite common in the Western world before, desire has become the central organizing principle of modern sexuality. More than arousal, more than reproduction, more than anything. That's a lot of um, pleasure yeah, on, a, yeah. on a relationship, Esther. I mean, Since the 60s, people can do it. When they want, they have contraception in hand. So here is a generation with contraception in hand, premarital sex as a norm, the possibility of experiencing with each other what they want. And so often they don't feel like it and they don't know why. And that's when studying desire in long-term relationship became really like, what's happening? Why don't they want to now that they can? In just a minute, we'll hear what Esther discovered when she investigated long-term intimacy and more on building resilient relationships, even when infidelity is involved. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. This message comes from Monday.com. Countless emails, endless video meetings. Sometimes it feels like technology is working overtime against us. Monday.com is getting it back on your side. Monday.com WorkOS is a customizable platform that gives teams the ability to easily create the tools they need and want for their work. Save time and focus on the work that matters. Keep track of what everyone is doing and take your productivity to the next level. To start your free two-week trial, go to monday.com. Thanks also to NerdWallet with their podcast, Smart Money. 
We can't predict the future, but being educated and aware of our world, especially the financial world, helps. Stay ahead of your finances by subscribing to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast, offering weekly updates on financial news and answers to the year's most pressing questions in home buying, investments, mortgage rates, and of course, credit cards. You can listen and subscribe to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Decades before the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s, Marcus Garvey attracted millions of followers with a message of Black self-sufficiency and Black nationalism in Africa. For our Black History Month special series, The Seismic Influence and Complicated Legacy of Marcus Garvey. Listen now to the Throughline podcast from NPR. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Anoush Zamarodi. And today on the show, building resilient relationships with therapist Esther Perel. And before the break, Esther was explaining how the expectations in modern marriage have changed. So we come to one person and we basically are asking them to give us what once an entire village used to provide. Give me belonging, give me identity, give me continuity, but give me transcendence and mystery and awe all in one. Give me comfort, give me edge. Give me novelty, give me familiarity. Give me predictability, give me surprise. And we think it's a given, and toys and lingerie are going to save us with that. (laughs) So now we get to the existential reality of this story, right? Because I think in some way, The crisis of desire is often a crisis of the imagination. When I say that we cannot have one person give us what once an entire village used to provide, what I'm saying is that there is a kind of individualization in romantic love that I think is problematic. Mm. Look, at this moment, I'm not just even meeting a partner. We are meeting a soulmate. (laughs) A soulmate used to be God. You know, but at this moment, people are talking about ecstasy, transcendence, meaning, wholeness, you know, things that we used to look for in the realm of the divine that have now been transcended into romantic love. Mm. It was meant to be. It's almost a divine intervention. It fell from the heavens in front of me. And, you know, I think that the problem is with that model of one person for everything. What I will say is that People need community and they need other friends. They need other people to talk to. They need other people to share activities that their partner isn't interested in. To ask one person to do all of that, to give me belonging, to give me meaning, to give me community, to give me transcendence, to give me and then all the other stuff of everyday life, succession, children, family life, money, etc., that is and clean out the dishwasher, Esther. Right. It's like that is, and, and, and everybody knows it. And I think Eli Finkel says it very nicely in his book. It's like, you know, the people who are able to get on the top of Mount Olympus have a fantastic view, and their relationships are often much better than the relationships in history. But not everybody can climb to the top of Mount Olympus. And so it makes all the other people feel like there's something wrong with them because they don't have this kind of bliss that they thought. They have normal, everyday marital warfare rather than marital bliss. Yeah, and I think that warfare can really be about anything, right? It can be work or family obligations, money, 
and infidelity, which is actually what your second TED Talk was about, the one you gave in 2015 called Rethinking Infidelity. Why do we cheat? And why do happy people cheat? And is an affair always the end of a relationship? For the past 10 years, I have traveled the globe and worked extensively with hundreds of couples who have been shattered by infidelity. There is one simple act of transgression that can rob a couple from their relationship, their happiness, and their very identity, an affair. And yet, this extremely common act is so poorly understood. Adultery has existed since marriage was invented, and so too the taboo against it. In fact, infidelity has a tenacity that marriage can only envy, so much so that this is the only commandment that is repeated twice in the Bible. Once for doing it, and once just for thinking about it. So how do we reconcile what is universally forbidden, yet universally practiced? Because I find a soulmate. When you cheat on me, it hurts more than it has ever hurt in history. Mm. Because I come today with the expectation that it isn't meant to be. It's not meant to happen. I didn't wait till I'm 34. You know, after I've met so many other people and I found the one. How can the one do that to me? When people did not marry, the one infidelity was deeply painful. When people marry their soulmate, infidelity is traumatic. And it's a shattering of their identity and their entire world. And in that sense, it has become one of the more ultimate betrayals in relationships. People can do a lot of things in relationships and nobody says instantly, get out, leave, throw the dog on the curb, you know, get out. And yet there are many, many other painful relational betrayals in in couples. But this one today has become the queen of betrayals because mm. of because love in 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 its idealization is not meant to include this kind of rupture anymore but you actually point out in your talk that for some of the couples who come to see you infidelity doesn't necessarily mean the end of their relationship the fact is the majority of couples who have experienced affairs stay together but some of them will merely survive and others will actually be able to turn a crisis into an opportunity. They'll be able to turn this into a generative experience. And I'm actually thinking even more so for the deceived partner, who will often say, you think I didn't want more, but I'm not the one who did it. But now that the affair is exposed, they too get to claim more, and they no longer have to uphold the status quo that may not have been working for them that well either. I've noticed that a lot of couples in the immediate aftermath of an affair, because of this new disorder that may actually lead to a new order, will have depths of conversations with honesty and openness that they haven't had in decades. And partners who were sexually indifferent find themselves suddenly so lustfully voracious they don't know where it's coming from. 
Something about the fear of loss will rekindle desire and make way for an entirely new kind of truth. Hmm. Yeah, what are you thinking when you hear that? Because you now have the benefit of 2020 hindsight. And do you think that society is changing the way, I guess, are people being more empathetic and kinder and less, um, you know, making moral judgments about people. And I suppose that that depends on what generation you're from. I think when I listen to it, I, I first of all, I haven't heard it in, in quite a few years. Um, and I rem- what stands out for me, first of all, is the silence in the room. I remember <laughs> the silence in the room. People were transfixed. I felt slowly like I am talking the taboo. And then I felt, you know, and I am in the United States. Um, and, um, and I knew this, this has never been said from a TED stage, any of this. And I just, at one point I was there, I was swimming and I had to continue swimming mm-hmm. and walk that fine line where I really wanted people on all sides of the experience to feel like I had addressed them with respect and dignity. Mm. And that fine line was so, so important for me. I've worked for 35 years as a clinician with couples. I've seen hundreds of people around this story. And I also understand that the people who come to me were looking for a certain approach that was not present enough. Mm. The other view is, is out there. And it's valid for some people, many people, it is really the view that they're looking for. But there were a lot of people that were looking for some other way. They actually knew that they were not in bad relationships. They didn't really want to separate. They wanted to find a way out of this that wasn't mired in shame and in secrecy and in silence. And that actually said to them, this is not the end of your relationship per se. And I was very pleased and moved that I could offer an alternative perspective to those who were looking for it. There is no one size fits all. So I think this is a great moment to turn to another side of your work, which is podcasting. You let listeners hear a therapy session between you and real couples on your podcast, which is called Where Should We Begin? So I guess, first of all, why a podcast? So after the TED Talk, um, I, I I said to myself, these are things that I've often spoken about, but only at clinical conferences and only in professional environments. This was my first time I was putting this out to the general audience. Mm. And I thought, this is where it belongs. There's so few people that can make it to my office or any therapist's office. This is actually a conversation that needs to take place in the public space. And I want to shape, influence, engage with the conversation on a global level about relationships today. Relationships are undergoing massive transformation um, on all levels, but especially couples have gone through an extreme makeover. There is no other relationship that has gone through so much change. And most couples have absolutely no idea what's happening 
in the neighbor's house, like you and your friend. You know, you're not living in the village where everybody hears what's going on next door. So your friend is divorcing and you think, oh, I thought everything was fine. You know, and I thought this office, I will preserve it. I will continue to do clinical work forever as much as I can. But what happens here needs to be democratized. Mm. It needs to be made available and for free and all over the world and to people who have no idea about this. And the, 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 the taking it out of the stigma and the shame was a piece of it, but it really is, was more, it will make it accessible. These are the conversations that people have at dinner table or when they sit with a friend. And I would like to, to let people know what happens to you is happening to other people too. A, you're not alone. B, when you listen deeply to the experiences of others, you actually see yourself in your own mirror. Mm. So even if this is not your personal situation, in every episode you will find something that actually speaks to you. And, and C, as you hear other people have those difficult conversations, maybe you'll have the courage to start your own and you'll get the vocabulary that you have needed. Okay, so we have a clip from Where Should We Begin? This is an episode called The Chronic Philanderer uh, from the most recent season. And in this episode, you talk to a couple who is dealing with the husband's infidelity. Uh, For years, he's been talking to strangers uh, in online chat rooms, and now he's having an affair uh, with an old friend from high school, actually. So let's listen to a clip. It makes me feel diminished. Like, it makes me feel replaceable. It makes me feel replaceable. Knowing, you know, one thing he would say to me at the beginning is that if I had met this woman before I met you, this is someone I could have seen myself live my life with. I was so shocked. I thought I was finally giving him the family that he needed to complete himself. I know. I was giving him the stability. I was trying to be, you know, loving and calm and compassionate and a good mother and... I was trying to do all these things. I thought I was, like, really giving you everything that you wanted. They were. And it's like, but that, but that's where it was. Did you hear? You were. I was, but it wasn't enough. But that may not be because you're not enough. That's the catch here, is to not translate this as if, if I was more, he wouldn't do this. Instead of, I was plenty. I know. And whatever he did is not a response to you. You have got to know that. I know. Okay? No matter how much you've given him, there's a piece of it he's going to have to do on his own. I know. Or not. Or not. Or not. Can I I just say something to qualify the comment that, I, this was someone I could live or see myself with a life with. I think in some ways, as warped as it may sound, I felt that was, it's not a compliment to you, but it's the idea that it, this wasn't just a, a, a floozy. This was someone of substance. The idea was, it was may an experience. I stop you? Yeah. I think the only are the most important thing at this moment, if you will say something to your wife, has to be about acknowledging how a thing it was to say and how hurtful it was. And not to justify yourself. 
Seriously. Well, I really wasn't trying to hurt her. I don't care if you were trying. But when we do, you own it. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. I am. Yeah. And what makes it worse is you keep justifying it. When sometimes it's just someone just wants to hear, I'm sorry, and that was wrong. Oof, Esther. I mean, this clip, I don't know how other people feel about it, but for me, I, I am torn. Like, on the one hand, it feels very voyeuristic, and on the other hand, I feel very judgmental. I'm like, come on, man, get your crap together. And then I'm also really listening to how you handle him. And I'm thinking, like, well, what can I learn from how Esther is talking to this guy? Interestingly, um, there's only uh, this is the only episode about infidelity in the whole season. Mm. But what people will have said and will say about this episode is many people want to strangle him. Um, and... <laughs> I think that, you know, that first of all, that is not my job. My job is to hold him responsible, accountable, um, hopefully have a, some ability to relate to another person's feeling and to the effect of his behaviors on his loved ones. And interestingly, when you reach the end of the session and you hear his, you know, his challenges around his feelings about masculinity, about the fact that he could not have a genetic connection to his children, about the way that, you know, he became the way he is, not out of nothing. Um, he becomes humanized. You may not like him, but you begin to understand him. And that is the role of the therapist. The wife has to decide what she wants to do. Um, and nobody lives with the consequences of her decisions but her. Mm. So it's very easy to tell people, do this, do that. We are not in their seat. We help people gain clarity. We help people dare to do the things that they are afraid to do, if that's what they say they want to do. But we also understand that this is a couple that um, has two decades together, um, almost, that they have a a rich life that they actually often get along quite well and that for a couple like that COVID may have actually been very good news hmm. confinement not COVID <laughs> right coming up we'll hear more from Esther on how she helps people navigate relationships in another area of life at work on the show today, building resilient relationships with Esther Perel. I'm Anoush Zamarodi, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Stay with us. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to our sponsor, CarMax. At CarMax, the best way to buy a car is your way. Shop on your schedule and choose from over 50,000 CarMax certified vehicles at CarMax.com. Check out 360-degree views, set up a trade-in appraisal, apply for financing, and buy online or in-store with curbside pickup and home delivery in select markets. Get all the details and start the search for your next car today at CarMax.com. 
Thanks also to Wondery's American Innovations, presenting Mission to Mars. On July 20th, 1989, President Bush announced his vision for a manned mission to Mars. More than 30 years later, the power of government and big business is finally coming together. And now the next chapter of humankind's space race is on. Listen to Mission to Mars from American Innovations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or listen ad-free in the Wondery app. Wondery, feel the story. Here at Planet Money Industries, we've manufactured T-shirts, we've bought oil, we've even gone... To space. But our next Planet Money series, well, let's just say a superhero is born. Coming to a podcast feed near you from NPR. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Anoush Zamarodi, and today on the show, therapist Esther Perel shares ideas on how we can all strengthen our relationships. Whether that's in the context of dating, marriage, family, and more recently, at work. When people go to work, you interview them about their official resume. What schools did they go to? What experience at work have they had? And nobody's asking you about your unofficial resume. Mm. And your unofficial resume is your relationship history. And that relationship history does not stop at the door when you go into the office. It travels with you. And it is going to influence how you work with your colleagues or with your father or with your co-founder, etc. A few years ago, nobody would invite me to come to talk about relationships in the corporate or in the business context. Because Why? Rela- Were too risque? No, no. Relationships was a soft skill. Relationship was soft skill. It wasn't part of the bottom line. And soft skills were often considered feminine skills, Hmm. and feminine skills were often idealized in principle and disregarded in reality. And as we moved in 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 the workplace from production to service to identity economy, where people now expect from work the same as they expect from their romantic relationships, those are the two places where people look for meaning, community, belonging, Hmm. continuity, all of those things. Now, suddenly, relationships become the new bottom line (laughs) because no amount of free food or money, compensation, (laughs) benefits is going to compensate for a poisonous relationship. And then I began to think, you know, I would love to go and show how these relational dynamics that I have been exploring, they don't just take place with your partner, your romantic partner. They actually are part of your relational life. And it's because of all those reasons that you started working on a new podcast, How's Work, right? Where you record therapy sessions with coworkers or co-founders and help them navigate their relationships. And I want to play a clip from an episode that's called Not Many Men Work With Their Moms, where you have a session with a mother and a son who've been running a real estate firm together. And first, the mom ran the firm by herself 25 years before hiring her son when he was 22 years old. And now here they are. It's six years later. And the two of them are finding it hard to separate their relationship as mother and son, and their relationship as business partners. I'm 61, and I have a problem now. I don't know how I will go on and for how long I will go on. You have your whole life in front of you. I I don't. 
And I'm here because I cannot find my references anymore. Comes a moment when I want to say, maybe there's something else for me. I don't know where I stand anymore. This is my problem. And maybe that's why I'm so nervous sometimes. You know, sometimes I'm at the office. I see that he's uh, bad-tempered. I said, oh, maybe he's hungry. I'm going to the supermarket. The mama again. <laughs> and I do, I, I do like this. I do, Are you okay? He stroke his face. Where's the mom? Where's the boss? Difficult. Wow. <laughs> Some, and also when I tell you, don't tell the, the, the clients, my mom... Is busy, she will phone you back. Tell Mrs. will phone you back. <laughs> All those things you have to adapt. Mm-hmm. Very difficult. But I have, I have a question. I have a question. And I have a question to you. Do you still need me? This I want to know. Do you still need me? Honestly. Mm-hmm. The, the way it has been the last five, six years, it has been um, a learning curve. And um, I still learn every day from you. But it's more of a way that I don't need you to hold my hand as much anymore. You can loosen it a little bit. Or I, I can let the hand go a little bit as well. For my years to come, it's more knowing that you have my back, more then you hold my hands. There will come a moment where I will not be there anymore. You have, you, you will have to be alone. I'm thinking a lot about that. Mm-hmm. It's good to know. Do you know that? Subconsciously, I do. Esther, listening to that conversation, I'm just so impressed that they are so open with each other. Do they? Do you find that the people who want to do these sessions with you are are they are ready to have the conversation, or is it hard work getting them to sort of get to where they need to go? I would say the conversation is ready for them. They have no idea what they're going to do. Hmm. Um, I am very moved when I hear this passage myself. It's like, um, it's, it's the conversations that, you know, the majority of the world is family business. It's not corporations. <laughs> um, and, uh, um, I know so many sons and fathers and sons and mothers or daughters and parents, um, who would like to have a similar conversation. Mm. So, no, I don't think they come in because they're ready. They come in because they're they're stuck. They come in because they experience pain. They come in because they don't see a way out. And they say maybe a session with Esther could be helpful. And, and this episode really is a good example of what you mentioned before, that as much as uh, therapy is about um, exploring intimacy and relationships, it's very important to have context be part of the conversation. And of course, with this duo's conversation, the context is kind of messing with their heads. There's a a mother-son relationship that suddenly doubles as a professional partnership. Um, In other cases, I'm assuming you talk to people who go in business with a close friend. Um, What are some of the main challenges you see when relationships function or they have to function in multiple contexts? So, Look, a lot of co-founders these days are friends who meet in college. 
And in the beginning, you know, there's another episode of two friends like that who started a company that became very successful, except they can't communicate with each other one bit. And one is literally on the way of kicking the other one out. And that is painful enough when it's between two people who work together, but when it's your friend and when you feel like you were the one who are in the previous incarnation were the one who was protecting him and you were doing much more of the work and you were kind of letting them, you know, roll behind you and that you're not just going to lose your partner, but you're going to lose your friend and you're going to lose all the memories that were attached to this person that used to be so positive. Mm. I mean, how often do you sit at a, at a dinner and you meet someone who starts to tell you these horror stories of breakups bad breakups and like in romantic relationships when people remarry you want to know what is the story of their previous relationship and their divorce well when you start a business with somebody you want to know or even a relationship with someone you work with you want to know what was their relationship with the people who had that position before mm -hmm. and i ask everybody how many of you in your businesses have bad breakups And to what extent do those breakups and in what way do these breakups influence the way you start to work with the next person? Hmm. And even who you hire, which often will tend to hire the person whose strengths match the weaknesses of the one before you. Um, I think work is a very rich ecology to explore the overt and the covert, the, the, the seen and the unseen relationship dynamics that people bring. We expect it more in our personal relationships, but it happens no less at work. It, it makes me think um, also about how the pandemic has really changed, you know, for essential workers, they're still in the same context, obviously under enormous strain for their family. And then there are the other people who are working from home on that, what it feels like thousands of Zoom calls where I know for me, you know, I'm in the middle of a meeting and I'll have my daughter plop down on my lap. And it's it can be very disorienting, I think, for people that you're in one context and another context at the same time. So I would say I don't think we are working from home, Manoush. I think we are working with home. Mm. I am with my family, my children for some of us, my partner for some of us, my parents, my siblings, my roommates. I am inhabiting all the roles at the same time. I am the parent, the teacher, the lover, the friend, the child of, the colleague, the boss, the CEO, the C you name it. And it's all happening often on the same chair in the kitchen. <laughs> I do not leave you know we are used to having a different attire and a different time and a different space for the multiple activities that we engage in when we go to work we get dressed a certain way we go to the exercise we change clothes we move we go from one place to another our activities are demarcated and delineated in time and in space and at this moment it is pretty much all a wash mm. I am homeschooling here and there's no summer programs I'm watching my children at the same time I'm trying to have a meeting I am pretty much dressed from the from the midline up <laughs> so we have all these disembodied experiences and people talk about exhaustion for a reason um, because even the phone is much better you know where we actually are in synchronized time and not in a delay constantly mm. and, um, and and we're not trying to look at people with whom we actually never make eye contact so 
I think it's a very different reality. For some of us, um, we manage. We are. We have a separate room. We can go. Some people even get dressed in the morning as if they were going to work, and they try to really maintain the the routines, the rituals, and the boundaries, which are the three essential elements that create structure. But for many of us, it is way more chaotic and and draining. That's the reality at this moment of working, as we like to call, from home or Zoom life. It's funny. You know, the other thing that I've been thinking about is you talked about how work has changed and how it's become more part of our identity and community and this the, the sense of belonging at work. It's not a job. It's it's who you are. And I wonder, you know, are, are, are you hearing from I'll give an example like Airbnb, a company that, you know, recruited people based on identity. You're part of the team, the free snacks, the the parties. It, and then they had to let go of a, a high percentage of their workforce. And you think, well, wait, I thought we were a family at work and, and now that's over. Yes. Work was not just what I do, but who I am. Yes. And when I lose my job, I lose a fundamental part of my identity. I thought I mattered because a younger generation has been raised with a deep sense that they are important and that they matter. And I can, I'm totally dispensable. And nobody actually really feels responsible for making sure that I will have something to eat. I think what a pandemic does for work and for personal is it rearranges your priorities. Mm. It, it makes, you know, a pandemic is an accelerator. Every disaster is an accelerator of relationships. It's an, it's an accelerator because it brings mortality to the forefront or loss, loss of job as well. And at that moment, you basically say, what am I waiting for? I'm going to go do what's really important. So I actually think that there's going to be a burst of creativity as well where people are going to say, if I can't do the traditional route and I went and I studied something and I prepared myself or I worked very hard and I hoped I would climb the, the ladders and all of that. If the, if, the, if the promise of the traditional system doesn't hold, then I can go and try something completely different. There is a rearranging of priorities and a reach for the essence that, have, that accompanies situations of disaster and I think that's what we are seeing as well you know people are having much deeper conversations with their colleagues mm. at work people understand you know they, 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 they see homes they've never seen where their, their colleagues live <laughs> they're in their living rooms they're in their kitchens they're in their bedrooms who is with you who are you taking care of who's your salary meant to feed you know there is a, actually a level of depth that is resurfacing, that, I, that is very beautiful, you know. So I think in the relational sense, I would say that a, a, a pandemic, a disaster, often will highlight the cracks and it will also highlight the light that shines through the cracks. Is that the same thing for, you know, there, there are predictions that divorce rates will be, will rise. Do you yes. think that that's true too? Yes, because when you say, you know, what am I waiting for? It can mean life is short. Right. I don't want to wait. I want to be with you. Let's move in. Let's get together. Let's have children. Let's, you know, let's do the things that we've been wanting to do. But it can also say life is short. I've waited long enough. 
<laughs> and I'm out of here. And I just, I don't want to compromise. I don't want to accept things that the brevity of life doesn't allow me to accept anymore. And so I have to ask, therapist, how are you doing through all of this? I, I think I mirror what I describe in the world and often thought of my parents. Mm. Because thinking about prolonged uncertainty and living with a deep sense of unknown and when is this going to end is what they would talk about. They talked about it, but also people who were living in hiding during World War II, who spent years, years in a ditch, in a closet, mm. in a haystack. And you wonder, how do people do it? And the spirit is so strong that they are actually there to tell us, at least some of them. And so I really began to, to listen to those stories. You know, what does it take to, to continue to wake up and to have hope? and to give meaning to the hope, and to give hope to the meaning, as Viktor Frankl used to say. And what is it? Huh. I mean, in my case, I think if I'm helpful, if I can do somebody something for someone else, I feel less helpless. And then I have a reason to get up. It's, it's, ultimately, it's your relationships to other people. I still want to see them one more time. I want to hold them one more time. Um, I, I don't want to let go of the meaningful relationships I have and the meaningful things I do. I think ultimately that's what gets everybody up. That's therapist, author, and speaker, Esther Perel. We are so grateful to her for spending the hour with us. Her podcasts are Where Should We Begin and How's Work. And you can hear her two TED Talks at TED. Thank you so much for listening to our show this week with Esther Perel on building resilient relationships. To see hundreds more TED Talks, check out TED.com or the TED app. Our TED Radio production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkinpour, Rachel Faulkner, Diba Motasham, James Delahousie, J.C. Howard, Katie Bontelion, Maria Paz Gutierrez, Christina Kala, and Matthew Cloutier. Our theme music was written by Ramtin Arablui. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Michelle Quint. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and you've been listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab, whose financial consultants believe in getting to know the people behind the portfolios with personalized advice, retirement planning, and more. It's time to change to a modern approach to wealth management. Learn more at schwab.com. It's TED Talks Daily. I'm Elise Hugh. I remember being in New York on the last day Broadway was open before it shut down because of the fast spread of the coronavirus. It's hard to imagine so many theaters dark right now, putting artists and technicians out of work. In today's talk, actor and educator Kara Green Epstein champions the power of theater, which has historically survived other plagues before, to help make meaning of this traumatic period we're in and connect us to one another again one day. 
TED Talks Daily is brought to you by KiwiCo. I am a mom of three, and I'm constantly trying to find ways to keep the kids creatively challenged. With KiwiCo Project Boxes, you can get a subscription crate of hands-on science, art, and geography projects delivered to your door. My youngest just made a bear backpack, and she loves it. My middle child really feels proud that she put together a robot on her own. There are crates for kids of all ages. Get 30% off your first month plus free shipping on any crate line with code TED at KiwiCo.com. That's 30% off your first month at K-I-W-I-C-O.com, promo code TED. Oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention. A kingdom for a stage, princes to act, and monarch to behold the swelling scene. Though to be totally honest, right now I'd settle for a real school day, a night out, and a hug from a friend. The words that I spoke at the beginning oh, for a muse of fire, etc., are Shakespeare's. He wrote them as the opening to his play, Henry V, and they're also quite likely the first words ever spoken on the stage of the Globe Theatre in London when it opened in 1599. The Globe would go on to become the home for most of Shakespeare's work, and from what I hear, that Shakespeare guy was pretty popular. But despite his popularity, just four years later, in 1603, the Globe would close for an extended period of time in order to prevent the spreading and resurgence of the bubonic plague. In fact, from 1603 to 1613, all of the theaters in London were closed on and off again for an astonishing 78 months. Here in Chicago, in 2016, new theaters were opening as well. The Steppenwolf had just opened its 1700 theater space. The Goodman down in the Loop had just opened its new center for education and engagement. And the Chicago Shakespeare Theater had just started construction on its newest theater space, The Yard. Today, all of those theaters, as well as the homes for over 250 other theater companies across Chicago are closed due to COVID-19. From Broadway to LA, theaters are dark, and we don't know when or if the lights are ever going to come on again. That means that tens of thousands of theater artists are out of work, from actors and directors to stage managers, set builders, costume designers. It's not like it's an easy time to go wait tables. It's a hard time for the theater. And it's a hard time for the world. But while theaters may be dark, theater as an art form has the potential to shine a light on how we can process and use this time apart to build a brighter, more equitable, healthier future together. Theater is the oldest art form we humans have. We know that the Greeks were writing plays as early as the 5th century BC, but theater goes back before that. It goes back before we learned to write, to call and response around fires, and who knows, maybe before we learned to build fire itself. Theater has outlasted empires, weathered wars, and survived plagues. In the early 1600s, theaters were closed over 60% of the time in London, and that's still looked at as one of the most fertile and innovative periods of time in Western theater history. The plays that were written then are still performed today over 400 years later. Unfortunately, in the early 1600s, a different plague was making its way across the ocean. And it hit the shores of what would be called America in 1619, when the first slave ships landed in Jamestown, Virginia. Racism is an ongoing plague in America. But many of us in the theater like to think we're not infected, or that we are, at worst, asymptomatic. But the truth is, our symptoms have been glaring on stage and off. We have the opportunity to use this intermission caused by one plague to work to cure another. We can champion a theater that marches, protests, burns, builds, 
We can reimagine the way our theaters and institutions work to make them more reflective and just. We can make this one of the most innovative and transformative periods of time in Western theater history, one that we are still learning about and celebrating 400 years from now. What we embody in the theater can be embodied in the world. Why? Because theater is an essential service. And what I mean by that is that theater is in service to that which is essential about ourselves. Love, anger, rage, joy, despair, hope. Theater not only shows us the breadth and depth of human emotions, it allows us to experience catharsis, to feel our feelings, and rather than ignore or compartmentalize them, move through them to discover what's on the other side. Now, many art forms connect us to our emotions, but what makes the theater unique is that it reveals us to ourselves on stage so that we can see that our lives are about our relationships and our connections to others, to our parents, to our children, to our teachers, to our tormentors, to our lovers, to our friends. What we do when we engage with theater is we experience in real time, in real space, those relationships and connections changing in the present. The relationships between characters on stage, yes, but also the relationships between characters and the audience and the relationships between audience members themselves. We go to the theater because we seek connection. And when we're in the theater, our hearts beat as one. That's not a metaphor. Our hearts race together, they're soothed together, we breathe together. Aye, there's the rub. Who knows when we're going to be able to be together again in the same space, breathing in the same air, breathing in the same experience. Who knows when we're going to want to be? We are holding our breath. Luckily, theater doesn't just have to happen in theaters. As theater practitioners, we know some of the most important work we do happens offstage, in rehearsal spaces, garage spaces, studio apartments. At the beginning of this talk, I wished for a kingdom for a stage, princes to act and monarchs to watch the show. But the truth is, none of that is necessary. In fact, some of the most important theater I make happens on Monday mornings in an empty hospital meeting room with just a handful of folks, and only two of us are theater artists. The Memory Ensemble, as we call ourselves, is a collaboration between the Looking Glass Theater and Northwestern Center for Cognitive Neurology and Alzheimer's Disease Research. We begin each session with a mantra. I am a creative person. When I feel anxious or uncertain, I can stop, breathe, observe, and use my imagination. Anyone else feeling anxious or uncertain right now? <laughs> Let's say it together. I am a creative person. When I feel anxious or uncertain, I can stop, breathe, observe, and use my imagination. Let's look at the first part of that statement, I am a creative person. Many of us have been taught that creativity is a talent only some of us have, a skill reserved for artists, inventors, big thinkers. That it's not something for regular people with quote unquote real jobs. But that's not true. All humans are innately creative. It's part of what makes us human And if there was ever a time for us to exercise our creativity, it's now. Not to solve or fix our anxiety and uncertainty, but to learn from it and to move through it. So the first step is to stop. That's harder than it sounds. 
busy is a coping mechanism that we use to deal with our anxiety and uncertainty. And our society is addicted to it. So we find ourselves making all the TikToks, baking all the bread, taking all the Zoom meetings. Maybe you've even seen that meme about how Shakespeare wrote King Lear during his pandemic, which I think is supposed to inspire us, but instead just makes us feel guilty that we're not creating our own masterpieces right now. You know, in addition to taking care of our children or our parents or our students, our patients, our clients, our customers, our friends, ourselves. So A, screw that guilt. And B, that's like the opposite of what King Lear is actually about. Towards the end of Lear, one of the main characters, Edgar, says, the weight of this sad time we must obey. Speak what we feel, not what we ought to say. The lesson of Lear is not about pushing or producing or doing what you think you should do. The lesson of Lear is about stopping and taking the time to appreciate who and what you have in your life and discover who you want to be while you have it. We're at an intermission. And intermissions are important because they give ourselves the opportunity to take care of ourselves physically and emotionally. Go to the bathroom, get a snack, get a drink. And also take a moment to feel the weight of what just happened on stage. Maybe begin to process any emotions that that brought up. I reached out to my community of artists and I asked them what plays were speaking to them and helping them process this time. Many of the characters in the plays they sent don't share my lived experience. And I think their words are important to hear. My friend Jeremy sent me a monologue by Sarah Rule from her melancholy play. In it, the character is talking about how she's feeling, and she says, it's this feeling that you want to love strangers, that you want to kiss the man at the post office or the woman at the dry cleaners. You want to wrap your arms around life, life itself, but you can't. And so this feeling wells up in you, and there's nowhere to put this great happiness, and you're floating, and then you fall. And you you feel unbearably sad. And you have to go lie down on the couch. I felt that monologue a lot during this pandemic. Sometimes I feel this great happiness. And sometimes I have to go lie down on the couch. My theater practice teaches me that both are okay. We stop so that we can feel our feelings instead of covering them. Next, we breathe. When we inhale, we give ourselves the opportunity to breathe in the present moment and be aware of what's happening right now inside of us as well as outside of us. When we exhale, we allow ourselves to release the moment so that we can be present for the next one and the next one and the next one. When we feel anxious or uncertain, we tend to hold our breath. We're scared about what's going to happen next and so we hold on to what's happening right now which prevents movement, which keeps us stuck. Far from helping us, holding our breath holds us back. So we stop, we breathe, and then we observe. What's happening around us? How do we feel about that? My friends Greg and Kanisha told me that I should watch the play Pipeline by Dominique Morisot. And at the beginning of the play, maybe the character has been on stage for a minute, Omari turns to his girlfriend and he says that he's just like modestly, without intentions, just observing. And his girlfriend says, what you got to be observing for? And Omari says, to take in my surroundings, learn the world, not be just tied up in my own existence and nothing else. 
That observation is the key to unlocking our empathy and our curiosity about the world and igniting our imagination about how we can make it even better. My friend Hasmin introduced me to the play Marisol by Jose Rivera. And in it, the guardian angel is talking to Marisol. And she says, I don't expect you to understand the political ins and outs of what's going on, but you have eyes. You've asked me questions about children and water and war in the moon, questions I've been asking myself for a thousand years. The universal body is sick, Marisol. The constellations are wasting away. The nauseous stars are full of blisters and sores. The infected earth is running a temperature, and everywhere the universal mind is racked with amnesia, boredom, and erotic obsessions. Sound familiar? We stop, we breathe, we observe. And we use our observations to imagine a world that is fiercer, braver, more beautiful. We use our imaginations to create something new based on our connections to the world and ourselves. One of the things that I know is this. There's always been a certain amount of uncertainty in the theater. But this is the most anxious and uncertain we've ever been in my lifetime. In order to move forward, there's going to have to be a lot of change. Luckily, all great theater provides the opportunity for transformation. We can use this intermission to stop, breathe, observe, and use our imaginations to create a more beautiful world on stage and off, one that is more equitable, more reflective, and more just. As Pryor says at the end of Tony Kushner's masterpiece about the AIDS epidemic, Angels in America, I'm almost done. The fountain's not flowing now. They turn it off in the winter, ice in the pipes. But in the summer, it is a sight to see. I want to be here to see it. I plan to be. I hope to be. This disease will be the end of many of us, but not nearly all. And the dead will be commemorated and they will struggle on with the living. And we are not going away. We won't die secret deaths anymore. The world only spins forward. We will be citizens. The time has come by now. You are fabulous creatures, each and every one, and I bless you more life. The great work begins. The theater has weathered wars, outlasted empires, and survived plagues. It'll continue. I don't know how or when or what it'll look like, but it will. And so will we, as long as we do the essential work of staying connected to that which is essential about ourselves, our communities, and our world. The great work begins. Thank you. Ever wonder how much growth is possible in your business in four, five, six years? What moves you need to make, what mindsets you need to shift, what connections you need to make? 
Welcome to Being Boss, a podcast for creatives, business owners, and entrepreneurs who want to take control of their work and live life on their own terms. I'm your host, Emily Thompson. And today I'm talking with a boss who has grown up with us here at Being Boss. In the past six years, she has launched and grown her law firm for online business owners into a very boss business. She's grown her team, her revenue, her revenue streams, and her impact. And because this growth has happened alongside us here at Being Boss, and I've gotten to witness this growth as her friend, I'm so pleased to share more of her journey with you so that you can see what steps can be made and what growth is possible when you show up and do the work as a value-driven, hardworking, and authentic boss. Today, Autumn Whit Boyd is joining me to talk about her business journey and to share more about the explosive growth she's experienced in the past few years. She's an experienced lawyer who provides sophisticated legal strategy for online businesses. The AWB firm is the go-to for businesses selling online courses, digital downloads, and coaching services. Autumn is my lawyer here at Being Boss and works with the likes of Amy Porterfield, Melissa Griffin, and many more to grow and protect their online empires. For side hustlers and solopreneurs, Autumn's firm offers a variety of customizable, affordable contract templates. Autumn also hosts the Legal Roadmap podcast, which teaches business owners how to protect their rights and stay out of legal hot water. She lives in Chattanooga, Tennessee with her husband, twin boys, and daughter. Autumn, welcome back to Being Boss. I am so glad to see your face. (laughs) I know. Thank you, Emily. In in my dreams, we're sitting on your front porch with a cocktail, but this is a good second place. I guess. <laughs> I guess this <laughs> is a really shitty second place, but I'll take it. No, I completely agree. I would much rather be sitting on my porch with you literally any day. I was telling someone, um, someone recently, actually, I'll tell everyone, usually Autumn and I have sort of end of I guess, beginning of holiday break drinks. That's like been our little tradition over the past couple of years. And so always on our last day of work, um, before we take off for the holidays, we get together, we've done brunch, we've done lunch, we've done dinner, we've done drinks. Like we just, we get together and like have a last hoorah, our our last like business lunch or whatever before the holiday break. And it's my favorite thing. We didn't get to do it this year. And I feel like that was like, of all the things in my life... (laughs) autumn that's the thing that really hurt the most (laughs) i know (laughs) i miss not having that with you but soon and we're gonna have so much lost time to make up for i know poolside Um, hopefully oh yes for sure poolside with all the cocktails and totally breathing each other's air That's that's what I desire most. Um, I'm so excited to have you back today in this capacity. It has been so long since we have had you on the podcast. I cannot even... Are you ready? I was pregnant the last time we recorded. So it was almost five years. Shut up. <laughs> yeah. It was a long time ago. Oh if anyone goodness. goes back and listens to that interview, I was so pregnant, I could not breathe. And so it sounds like I'm huffing and puffing. <laughs> interview. Oh my goodness. I did not even recall that. So that really I was puts mortified. It into perspective. Yeah, well, then it's, it's long overdue, long mm-hmm. overdue. And I also think that glad bring, to be back, right? Bringing you back now, I think is a really great opportunity because you have done so much in five years. 
So much has happened in your business that I really want to talk a little bit today because you, I guess you found us when you were beginning your business, sort of give me that little background of what was happening way back then, um, sort of how your trajectory, how that five or what was happening five years ago, I guess. Yeah. So it was really six years ago. I had just started my own law firm. This is early 2015 and, uh, a mutual, no, a mutual friend of ours, Meg Keen. I read her newsletter, um, from a practical wedding and she mentioned your podcast in her newsletter. And I was not in the creative entrepreneur field at all. Uh, but I just liked her blog. And so she said it was about business and marketing. And I thought, I'm starting a business. I don't know anything about marketing. <laughs> I should probably listen to this podcast. And so I started listening to it and I just immediately fell in love with you and Kathleen and all of the boss wisdom you were sharing. Um, and I kind of became a groupie immediately. And I remember in the beginning, I enjoyed it so much. I would only let myself listen to it when I went to the gym. And it was like an incentive to go to the gym. <laughs> but oh I got to God. listen to your podcast. <laughs> what great yeah, motivation. <laughs> I know it was like tuning in and hearing, you know, just like it was two yeah. business besties, just kind of talking. Uh, so I loved it. And then I don't know, at some point, maybe six or nine months later, you were going to move to Chattanooga where I live and you mentioned it on the podcast and I was a total creeper and emailed you and said, Hey, I'm in Chattanooga. I'm a listener. You know, just let me know if I can be helpful. I'm happy to be another friendly face. Um, and so we got together for coffee. We got to know each other. Um, and by that time, by the time you moved here, I had more moved into the creative space of the kinds of clients that we work with here at my law firm. It was not a law firm at the time. It was just me. <laughs> um, but I had, I love podcasts. I love listening to podcasts. So I had fallen into a couple of communities. I was in the Being Boss Facebook group and a couple of others. And um, just was meeting lots of bosses and there were really no other lawyers in that space. I mean, there was maybe one or two. I remember Rachel Rogers, who now has blown up and is in a totally different business, but she was like my icon, my idol, because uh, she was doing the kind of law that I wanted to do. I, I was an IP and contract lawyer. Um, so yeah, it was just very much like working one-on-one, -on -one, writing contracts for graphic designers and that kind of thing. Back in that day, um, I came to the Being Boss Conference in New Orleans, the first one, the what did you call it? Not a conference. Vacation. Being boss. Vacation. vacation yes. yes. Mm. I was also pregnant then. Um, yeah. So had a baby, um, made my first hire when I had Vivian because I knew I didn't want to be checking email on my maternity leave. Um, and we've just kind of grown bit by bit over the last five years. We're now three attorneys. I have a full-time marketing person, a part-time paralegal, part-time business manager, and then we're hiring an executive assistant. Hopefully by the time this airs, maybe we'll have found the person. Right. Uh, but yeah, we've really, we've really grown. So I'm happy to talk about that. Watching you do all of this has been amazing to watch. And I also have to say, I use you as the example of how and why cold emailing works. <laughs> all the time, literally all the time, because you're right. I remember, I, whoa, whoa. I remember getting an email from you and just as you said, like, I live in Chattanooga. I heard you're moving here. I'm a fan of the podcast. Let's have coffee. And I remember being like noted. And I will say too, I remember literally a week before you sent that email, David and I had had a conversation about how, you know, we were moving to Chattanooga. We needed to find a lawyer <laughs> and just, there are, there are right types, place, right time. There are types of people that you just need to know. 
and a lawyer is one of those. And so you reached out at just the right time in just the right way. And we ended up meeting up, becoming friends. We now work together. You are my go-to for all things contract and IP and and all the things. And so so you are you are my example of why cold emailing when done correctly, when done genuinely, um absolutely works and and really plays into what can be very long-term and mutually beneficial relationships. So I love that that's how we started out for sure. And I didn't think it was creepy. I know everyone always does. <laughs> and like that. there are creepy ones for sure, but it wasn't creepy to get that email. But watching you start from those very early phases of um, of leaving your previous job and doing this thing, committing yourself to building your own law firm and watching you do it all along the way has been such a treat because I really feel like I've seen this like I would say like this condensed boss journey, but it's not condensed. Like we've just really known each other that long. <laughs> I yeah. think. Like five six years, years, five, six years is a good amount yeah. of time for you to have to have made the strides that you've made in your business. And and that's really what I want to talk about today is is how it is that you have um, sort of executed that growth, how it is that you have sort of readied yourself like sort of personally, like mentally, emotionally, but also financially for that kind of growth, um, what that has really looked like for you. And so I'm wondering, maybe we'll start with like, can you identify any sort of milestones along the way where you feel like those were decisions that you made or opportunities that presented themselves to you, where you feel like these were the moments where things shifted in my business? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I will say, I mean, I, you know me, I'm kind of an open book. Um, the ability to leave my last job, which was like a high paying lawyer job, um, was pretty scary, but also my husband is also an entrepreneur. I also have a husband named David. <laughs> Let's make it a little confusing, right? There's my David and her David. Um, <laughs> yeah. We have our Davids. Um, he had been doing his own thing for long enough and had been through some roller coaster up, ups and downs. And he very much said to me, you know, I think you can do this. I think you can be you know, be your own boss. Um, and so he encouraged me and also his income had eclipsed mine. Um, and so that gave us some flexibility and we had some savings. And so we felt like, yes, it was a leap, but also it was kind of calculated. Um, uh, but I didn't take any clients with me from my last job. So it really was like, I am starting from zero. Um, but I am also a go-getter and I love meeting with people and I had done no sales in any of my former jobs. But once I figured out that sales was just like going to coffee with Emily or, um, meeting up with a friend who might refer me business, um, you know, or reaching out to somebody who maybe has like what we'll talk about, how my firm has really grown in the last year or two complimentary business services, like CPAs and CFOs, um, people who are working with the same kinds of people that I want to work with. It's really just sitting down and chatting with them and like telling them what you do and asking for them to send people to you. It's not that hard. And so once I figured that out, I mean, I literally, I had a goal my first, um, couple months of opening the firm, um, of having coffee or lunch every single day with someone. Um, so I really just started with my existing network um, and I sent out mailers. I, you know, sent lots and lots of emails to people just, Hey, let's catch up. I'd love to let you know what I'm doing and see if I could be helpful to you. Um, so that was, that was the big way. And then um, finding these online communities and then figuring out, cause I, I, I 
when I started my law firm, I thought that I would be a startup lawyer because here in Chattanooga, we have a big startup scene. I was an IP lawyer and I thought, oh, I could be so valuable and really helpful to all these startups. Well, it turns out they don't have any money. (laughs) They are not really looking for lawyers in the beginning. And there's all these law firms in town who basically do free legal work for startups because they know, you know, one out of 10 or one out of 50 is going to hit and then they'll get a good client out of it. Um, So that didn't work, but finding the online communities, finding, it really was a blue ocean. It still is very much a blue ocean, Um, kind of finding that niche. And then it becomes, you know, you do a good job for one person and they tell their friend. Uh, It was very organic that way. Um, And then there were some times when I figured out like my pricing was wrong. (laughs) We had to kind of fix some things and some up-leveling and there, there were not, it was not all sunshine and roses for sure. Right. No, it never is. Everyone know that right now. <laughs> Occasionally it will be sunshine and roses, but for the mm-hmm. most part, it definitely is not. Um, I do want to say just a couple of notes here. One is that you do have the most fantastically full social calendar of anyone <laughs> I've ever known. I'm always so people. impressed and a little jealous by it. I'm like, well, I want to have lunch every day too. Like it's just, it's, I love that you put this sort of effort and intention into connecting yourselves with people in a way that feels so good and aligned for you, but that also gives you the results that you're looking for. And I will say too, again, like I literally never see our like calls or chats or like any of those things like that. Like there is a real relationship that you are building with these people. And that is, that's the secret sauce there. Right. And so it does feel genuine. I know you feel genuine about it, but also from this side, it is as well. And it's funny, you were saying something like, you know, you're just showing up and, you know, asking for referrals and all this thing, but you're missing a really huge part of this. And that is that you're also really effing great at what you do. (laughs) (laughs) That helps. (laughs) Right. Like there is that that big missing part of what you offer is so valuable and you do it in, in such a way that brings so much, so much value and assistance to your people and your people being, you know, creative business owners. Like Mm -hmm. you just have this like groundedness that we need. (laughs) as creatives and you were really great at it. And so you sort of bundle all of those things up into who you are as an entrepreneur and um, watching that work for you (laughs) in all of the ways is just, you're sort of like a poster child. (laughs) (laughs) If I can say that. I'm going to talk about all my mistakes here in a minute. (laughs) We'll get to those in a second. First, first, let's paint a great picture. Um, But really, like you show up so authentically, you are consistently giving, you're always open for advice. And then whenever you do work with people, it is full of value. Um, And all of those things, I think, has added up to being really your secret sauce for success. And anyone's, I think anyone can apply these things for themselves um, in one way or another. So thank you for sharing all of that little peek behind the scenes of how Autumn Whit Boyd has is ruling the online um, online business lawyering world. And I also love that you called it your like lawyer job. <laughs> your your first lawyer real job. job. Right? <laughs> Whenever we had you come uh, do the Being Boss conference this past spring, I think your session was just called Lawyer Stuff <laughs> with Autumn Whit Boyd. <laughs> That's what it was on the, just a nice, on the agenda. A nice general term. 
Okay, then let's talk about then the past 12 to 24 months, because I do feel like the past 12 to 24 months has been when there has been a lot of explosion in your business. So I would love to hear, just catch us up on that little window of time. What has been happening? Yeah, it's funny. I was in my closet this morning and (laughs) I noticed my vision. (laughs) Just hanging out in your closet? (laughs) getting dressed. Okay. Fine. Out the pink sweater I'm wearing. Perfect. Uh, but that's where I have my vision board hung. And so for the past couple of years, every year I've made a vision board. I did not make one for 2021. Cause I got to tell you the 2020 vision is still, it's, it's still, still going. There. So <laughs> I took a look at it. And one of, one of the things that I had like cut out from a magazine and put on there was it took off like a rocket ship. And I was like, wow, that is how 2020 really felt. Um, you know, I went into the year and we've been building slowly, but surely I've been talking about for years, we've had numerous conversations where I was like, I'm just, I I really want to work with larger businesses. I'm not sure how to connect with them. Like it's, it has felt like a puzzle I couldn't crack. Um, and I feel like last year's the year I finally cracked it, honestly. And some of that was pieces that I had put in place in 2018 and 2019 that finally, you know, seeds that I'd planted that finally bloomed. Um, but we, we have finally gotten in those circles and it is, it's like any other, I hate to say it's like a click, but it kind of is, um, you know, if you do a good job for people, you treat them well, which we try to, um, they will send you their friends. Um, and so it took a little bit, but you know, we did some things. Um, I hosted a big dinner in San Diego where I invited some of my clients and then asked them to invite friends that I thought would a just enjoy the dinner and getting to be around people, but B, you know, who I would love to work with. Um, one of those people was Amy Porterfield. And so I sat myself across from her at the table for dinner and she is so kind and warm and, you know, was asking me all these questions about myself. And she said, you know, Autumn, who do you want to work with? Like, who's your ideal client? And I looked at her in the eye and I said, Amy Porterfield, (laughs) just subtle like that. (laughs) Yes. I mean, I I was like, why not? Like, when else am I going to be sitting at dinner with Amy Porterfield? Yeah. So she looked back at me and she was like, oh, and then it just kind of shifted the whole conversation. And she did end up hiring us to do something small and then kind of bit by bit. Um, we're now basically her outside general counsel for her company. Um, and that kind of cracked open the doors a little bit. Um, the other big thing that I think was seeds that we planted that have really paid off is a very intentional referral strategy, um, which is not as complicated as it sounds. But I mentioned earlier that... Uh, people who provide complimentary services to us are a great referral source. So it's even other lawyers who maybe don't want to do some of the things that we'll do because we're pretty full service. Um, But financial people like CPAs and CFOs have become our best referral sources. And so I started noticing that a couple of years ago. And so then I went into, I'm, I'm in um, Tara McMullen's community, the um, what works network. Um, so I went in there and just searched like, who are all the financial people? And I sent them emails just saying like, Hey, I often need financial referrals for my clients. I would love to get to know you. And so did a bunch of just zoom calls, you know, 15, 20 minutes. I will tell you CPAs, not chatty. (laughs) Like the quickest short. (laughs) (laughs) They are just pretty dry. Uh, but you know, just, I got to know them and it wasn't pretend like I do have clients who ask me about that. And I ask them like, who, who are the other professionals you're working with? Like, how can I make sure that you're being well taken care of? Cause a, a lot of times, even our seven and eight figure annual revenue clients will come to us and they've never worked with a lawyer before. 
they're kind of, they've, they have taken off like a rocket, but maybe they don't have some of those finance foundational things in place. So I noticed that that was a great referral source for us. And then I just tried to find more of them. Um, and so I did a lot of those calls. Um, and then I started asking my good clients, like, who are you working with? And then saying like, do you mind if I email them? Do you mind if I connect with them? Like, if you're happy with them, maybe I could send them more good clients. Um, and that has been, I mean, it just, it's kind of is like the, the boulder rolling down the hill. Like it has, um, kept us very, very busy yeah. <laughs> despite a pandemic. I mean, we had, uh, we almost doubled our revenue last year despite the pandemic and despite having like kids at home and everything falling from the sky around us. That is amazing. Um, And from, well, how much of that would you, would you say is from referrals? Like we ran a report. So we have a, a customer client management system, a CRM, um, that we track. Like if someone contacts us, we always ask, how did you hear about us? So we were able to run a report and I was sure it was going to be, I have a podcast, which we'll talk about in a minute. I do all this social media. I do Facebook lives, this, that, and the other. And I was like, oh, it's going to be from all those things. And it was like 95% referrals. Wow! Like it blew my mind when I saw that report. And that is really what started. That was like two years ago that we did that. Um, yeah, it's almost all referrals. That is amazing. And referrals are free. And they are so easy to close. Like if, like if Emily Emily has sent me some amazing referrals who like talked to one of them this week, um, like you you tell them I'm great. And then they come and they're just basically like, how can I hire you? Like it's so easy. Right. And they're wonderful. They're nice. Like if a nice person sends you someone, they're probably going to be nice. They're not going to be a jerk. Yeah. Um, It's just all the good things. Referrals are the best. For sure. Okay, good. I need everyone to go back. (laughs) There's an episode somewhere in the early 200s, I think, called Word of Mouth Marketing, where Kathleen and I start laying down the groundwork basically for this exact conversation. And I think about that time was when we were doing, when we did the Being Boss conference that ended up being online, where you were in on a session where I called it, you know, creative marketing strategies or something like that. But it was a little tongue in cheek because they weren't creative. They were old school, right? (laughs) Now we think of them as creative because it's not Not Facebook Facebook ads. ads. (laughs) Exactly. So, um, and referrals was something that we talked about a lot in that session. And so I love that you are here now, almost a year later, with an even broader picture of what referrals, what that word of mouth marketing has done for your business and that it has helped you double your revenue and literally cost nothing other than, you know, 20 minute phone calls with CPAs. <laughs> Which are fun. I mean, it's, yeah, it's not painful. No. And so, so anyone who is thinking about, you know, how is it that I grow my business, but you don't have any money to put into ads or to hire a marketing director or to do any of those things, do great work and encourage people to tell others about you. (laughs) It's, yeah, I mean, we ask for it. We like it when Emily has been on the receiving end of this email, when we close out a project, we say a referral is the best compliment you can give us. And we let people know like that we have availability. I mean, I think everyone presumes everyone else is so busy. Like, Oh, I can't, I couldn't possibly add more to your plate. It's like, no, no, (laughs) we're here. We would love more clients. Yeah, for sure. So just getting used to asking for it and telling people. Yes. Making it as easy as possible. And sometimes that just means Mm -hmm. a prompt reminding them, Mm -hmm. reminding them that, that it's something that you want. Um, I love this for you, Autumn. (laughs) I'm so impressed. So impressed that so much of it is referral. It's considerably more than I was expecting as well. Mm -hmm. 
This episode is brought to you by FreshBooks. When building a business you're passionate about, it's easy to feel like there aren't enough hours in the day. And if you're doing all the invoicing and accounting on your own, you're probably spending a lot of time on work you don't love. FreshBooks is built for business owners like you. It's the all-in-one accounting software that saves entrepreneurs and freelancers up to 11 hours a week. That's 11 hours you can spend nailing a client pitch, serving your customers, or honing your craft. Try FreshBooks free for 30 days, no credit card required. Go to freshbooks.com slash beingboss and enter beingboss in the how did you hear about us section. Perfect. Then let's talk about the support that you've needed to put in place to, um, to, I guess, capitalize on this growth, yeah. right? Because doubling your revenue in one year is no small feat. Um, as a one-on-one service provider. <laughs> right. As a one-on-one service provider, that that's not something that you really can or should scale, I don't think. So tell me a bit about what your team growth journey has been like along the way. Um, especially things like how have you figured out what roles you needed to fill and then actually finding the talent to fill them? Mm-hmm. It has been an evolution. Um, so I mentioned my first hire was, is still with me. Um, her name is Brooke. She's our business manager. Uh, she started out as like a three to five hour a week VA because I was terrified to hire someone. And, um, you know, it, I, I had pretty consistent revenues at that point, but I was still using most of it to pay myself. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's scary. That first hire can be scary, but like I said, I knew I didn't want to have to be the only one looking at my email while I was on maternity leave. So I brought her on and we kind of eased her into a couple of just really basic tasks. And it became very clear that she was so capable of doing more. And so, um, uh, she actually had, I think three or four jobs <laughs> when I first brought her on with other people. Um, she had a couple different part-time things and then one by one, I would kind of ask her if she had a little more capacity, if we could add things to her plate. Um, so she started taking over invoicing and she started managing my calendar. And uh, I mean, now she basically runs the place. So she let the other jobs go and kind of built up um, with us. So that has been amazing. So that was the first hire was just administrative support. Like I did not need to be spending my, my lawyer time. That's what we sell um, and it's expensive. So the more that I could kind of get off my plate and free myself up to do sales and legal work, really was, um, that helped a lot. Um, and then the second hire I think was, um, attorney help. So I hit the ceiling of my own capacity where I had more work than I could do. And I was staying up till midnight every night. And, um, that gets old real quick. That was like my old lawyer job, (laughs) which is why I left it. Um, so I just hired contract lawyers at first, you know, I asked friends, who do you know, who might have a little capacity, who can do these types of things. And it took some trial and error. Um, you know, anytime you're working with someone like that, who's juggling several different things, sometimes you get the short end of the stick. And so I had some of that where I would get things back that just weren't great, or they'd be late. Um, and they, you know, would apologize. Oh, I'm sorry. My other job was really demanding this week. Um, and so that gets frustrating after a while. So I had just kind of ended working with one contract lawyer and I was having lunch with a friend, like just local, just having lunch with a friend. And I mentioned, you know, yeah, I think I really need some more. I need to hire another attorney. And I wasn't even ready to do it. And she was like, Oh, you know, I have a friend who just moved here and is a stay-at-home mom, but she's a lawyer and might be interested. Like, I'll connect you. And so we went and had coffee and it was, this is Michelle who works with our team. It was very, like, it was just a personality fit very early on. Um, So I brought her on still as contract, still as just hourly as we needed her. Um, So it didn't feel like a big, scary commitment. Um, And then as we've gotten busier, she's a pretty steady, like 15 to 20 hours a week now. 
Um, so she's been with us about three years. Um, the next person I brought on was marketing help. So I was like, I had launched a podcast. I was doing the show notes and the emails and all the things that come with doing a podcast um, and really feeling like I could use some help there. So that was the next hire. Again, just, I was like, will you just write the weekly emails or will you just like help with the show notes and kind of just little bite-sized pieces? That is Sarah Kate, who is now our full-time marketing director. Um, So I've kind of hired people on a trial basis. uh, And I will say our next hire or our last hire was a full-time attorney and our next hire is going to be a full-time executive assistant. So you can like now our business can very much support that and needs that more. And it's not as scary. Like we have 16 members now, so it's not as scary. You know, I've got a big payroll, um, but we have the revenue to support it. So it, it becomes less scary as you do it more, I would say. Right. And you're definitely illustrating something that I've always said too. A lot of times people think that whenever they make that first hire, you have to jump right into full time. <laughs> Right. To full time help. You definitely do not. You do not. You can start someone three to five hours a week just to do those couple of little things that you need to do. And I love that you've also illustrated here how or what it looks like to really prioritize your core genius. Like you even said that, you know, you need someone to take care of emails and it's just sort of light work so that you could focus on the lawyering and the cells, Mm -hmm. those pieces that those pieces where you are most valuable in your business. Um, And that has helped you to just continue to scale time after time after time. How did it feel for you to, um, to hire out your core genius though. So you are the lawyer, you hired more lawyers. What, Yeah. how did you, how'd you do that? (laughs) Well, I had the the standard like, oh, I'm a special butterfly. Like no one can possibly do it like I can. (laughs) And um, that is not true. (laughs) Um, But it, you know, it took some training of me to let go of things. And then it also took some training of the clients that like, they're not gonna get me every time. Um, and it, I had to change the way I sell so that now I'm selling the team and not just selling myself so to set it up. Like you are going to get really well taken care of no matter who on our team you touch. And that probably will not be me all the time. Um, and so, you know, just being really open and honest about that. So people know what they're getting. Um, and then, you know, once they, once you start getting some time back, it gets a lot easier. Um, and with our, with our most recent hire, so Michelle was a big law firm partner. She had a real lawyer job too, before she came to work for me. Um, (laughs) she was a law firm partner. Like she was ready to hit the ground running. Like she didn't need any training. She needed to kind of learn. Um, I've kind of been training her in some intellectual property stuff and she didn't know anything about online business. Um, so I joked, I made her listen to a bunch of podcast episodes (laughs) about like online marketing, just so she could kind of learn how it works. Nice. Um, but she was pretty much ready to hit the ground running. Um, our our latest hire was more of a junior attorney. Um, and so I've been spending more time really training her in how I want things done, how I write a contract, how I conduct a client call, like all of that. Uh, but it's been really fun. I've really enjoyed it. And she's now kind of like my, her name's Shante. She's in New York, um, but she's kind of my right hand person. Like she's on all the calls with me. Um, I think she was on a call with us yeah, not long ago. Her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so she's still, I'm still reviewing all of her work, um, but she is like whip smart and learning and picking everything up really quickly. So I know that's kind of a short-term investment that will pay off when I can, when I kind of let her fly free, which she's probably ready to fly free. And I'm just kind of a little nervous still, but <laughs> I'm still not, I'm still, I write in my journal every morning, I'm becoming a leader. 
I still feel like I'm kind of growing into it. You are a leader already, Autumn. And I think think that what you're what you're talking about here is something that I've experienced as well that I really enjoy, and that is sort of imparting your knowledge into someone who can like take your work even further. Like I find mm-hmm. I find a lot of joy in that and in, in yes. sort of creating this broader sort of this broader opportunity for impact with the work that you do by teaching others to do your work with you and for you and all of those things. It's something you're able to make more impact than you can ever make on your own. Yeah. And I didn't realize how much I would enjoy, like we just had a team retreat last week and every single person, and I mean, I know it's the team retreat, so they could be just blowing smoke, but, um, you know, everybody said they really are working their dream job. And I didn't realize how amazing that would feel and what like pleasure and like how, how fulfilling that would be that not only are we affecting our clients' lives and hopefully doing good work and getting everybody's legal house in order, but you know, I'm also, I'm a job creator. Like that's amazing. I'm giving, and, and we joke that we're an all girl band, (laughs) not that we would never hire a dude. We just haven't yet. Um, but we, we really enjoy each other's company. We have a great time together. Like everybody's really supportive, no jerks allowed. Um, I, that has been a really pleasant surprise. Right. That's that next level of impact too, Mm -hmm. right? Where, you know, we all do these things to create our dream jobs, right? But to be able to create someone else's dream job too, that's, that's next level. It's pretty awesome. Oh, oh, I love this. Okay, perfect. I want to talk about this marketing hire because this, like a full-time marketing person, that's like, that's legit. I know. Um, and in one of those where I could see, you know, you hiring a lawyer, you can see really an immediate return on investment, right? right. Like that mm-hmm. hire, is, I'm paying them X, I'm charging them out at Y, like there's a profit margin there. For yeah. sure. Marketing, it's a little less black and white. So I would love mm-hmm. to hear from you about that decision, how it is that, or why it is you made that Im- initial move into, well, and you mentioned it a little bit, having someone do the emails, all those things, but what did mm-hmm. it look like for that decision-making, like moving her into a full-time marketing position? Yeah. Well, we have a second side of our business that I've not mentioned, which is we sell contract templates. So it's a digital product. Um, and it really is almost like having two separate businesses, the law firm and the digital products. There's a lot of overlap with customers, um, less so as we've started working with larger businesses on the law firm side, but still a fair amount of overlap. Um, and they are customizable. They are very affordable. They are a really good fit if your business is like zero to even really like half a million dollars annual revenue. I think the contract templates are your first stop for legal. Um, and so I've sold them for five years and they've never really taken off because I've never really been able to give them that much attention because running a one-on-one service business and having really high standards, which we do, I mean, that's where my attention goes. That's where I spend my time. So in the past, we've had a summer slowdown and I've like tried to do some marketing things. Um, I'm also, I realized about a year and a half ago, I'm not a natural marketer. Like I'm pretty good at sales. Not that great at copy. Um, just it's, like it's a skill set. It's not one that I've developed and it's not, it doesn't come naturally to me. And I really like to capitalize on my strengths. Um, and Sarah Kate has really grown in the couple of years she's worked for me. So she had, was kind of like Brooke. She had a bunch of different clients that she worked with, um, that she was kind of juggling. And so some months I would have more of her time. Some months I'd have less of her time, depending on what else, what we had going on and what she had going on. Um, 
So I had actually brought in someone else from outside um, to be a like a um, an integrator, I guess, like a marketing. I wanted like a marketing manager. I wanted someone who could do strategy and impl- implementation. Um, Sarah Kate had not really been doing the strategy. She was just doing kind of the day-to-day. Um, so I brought in this other person and it did not work out. Um, it was just kind of a mess. And around that same time, I think, and I haven't asked Sarah Kate this, but I think she kind of saw that. And this other person was expensive, um, not full-time employee expensive, but like expensive. And I think Sarah Kate kind of realized that she had some skills and could demand a higher rate. So she actually came to me and said, I think I want to start a marketing agency. <laughs> and I was like, okay, interesting. Um, so she kind of had some ideas and she gave me some pricing and she was going to hire some people to work under her. And I just honestly wasn't that thrilled with the idea of like having more layers of people um, and still like, just wasn't sure. I hadn't seen the strategy from her. Um, and so I basically said like, I don't think this is a, a great fit for us right now. Um, you know, if, if you need to go do it on your own, that's fine. No hard feelings. Um, but then as we kind of kept talking and, you know, she was still working with us, I kind of looked at her and I was like, what if you just work for us? Like, if you want to make more money and you want to have like more control, like, I think I could use you full-time. I think if you were focused here full-time, we could really take the contract templates. I mean, I think it could be a million dollar business. Um, if we had the time and energy to put into it. Um, and so I offered that to her and she said, yes. <laughs> so she started full-time in December and man, it has been, she's incredible. She has really, really showed up and put together a brilliant marketing plan. We did a, you can't see this if you're listening, but we did a challenge. She made this like beautiful workbook. We're doing all the internet marketing things that just take a lot of time and energy and she's doing Facebook ads for us. Um, we've, we like tripled our contract template sales this year and we're poised to do a lot more next year. Um, yeah. So, um, and she was, she was like pitching me for podcasts. She's done just, we've tried all kinds of different things, but, um, having her, like having a full-time person, just looking at that. And she really owns that part of the business now. Like I come in and I'm like, just tell me what to do. Like, do I need to do a Facebook live? Do you need a, are we missing this contract? You need me to write it? Like, just tell me. Um, but it's been really fun to watch her grow into that and really like kind of own it. Um, and she's doing way better than I ever did. So, um, again, another kind of scary, like, this is a full-time person, uh, but she's killing it. And like the ROI has become, um, like she is proving her she's earning her money very much. Nice. Ooh, this is so good. And it's something that, something that I'm seeing a lot these, these days too. You know, I see these interesting sort of ebbs and flows of sort of, I don't really want to call them trends in business, but Mm -hmm. sure. I'll call them that, especially like in the, in the realm that we play in where, I mean, I'm literally telling people all the time to like start a business. That's like sort of what this podcast is about more or less. But I completely recognize what you're saying where, you know, sometimes the best benefit is not from hiring another agency to do the job of having these layer, more layers of systems and people and permissions and all of these things. But it's finding someone who can just be your person and that for that person, you are their person. Right. Yeah. Like they, you get their total focus um, and their, you know, complete uh, all the implementation is yours. I think there's something very amazing that comes from those sorts of those sorts of relationships, too. And really just plays into this like broadening spectrum, I think, of like how it is that you can work with people. And I love that for this one, for you, you have 
you know, sort of taking all the little steps along the way to find a place that really works for both of you and that you're seeing the ROI. Yes. And I will say, like, I don't think most service businesses need a full-time marketing person. Like, honestly, I did not have a full-time job for her if if it were just the law firm. And she's really doing very little marketing for the law firm. You've heard it's mostly me having coffee chats these days. Right. But, um, but the digital products, like that other side, the other revenue stream. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like yeah. it. And that is scalable in a way, like without more people and, you know, in a different way than a one-on-one service is. For sure. Mm. This is good stuff, Autumn. You have been doing so much fun stuff. Okay, now I do want to talk about the podcast. And I'll tell everyone, you know this. This is why I emailed you. (laughs) This is why I was like, okay, I have to hear this story, Autumn. But will you tell me the story on the podcast? (laughs) So you've been doing your uh, legal roadmap podcast for how long? Uh, Four years, four and a half. Four, four and a half years. And I started it right after I had Vivian. This is all like Vivian's life story in a podcast. <laughs> well, Vivian is still alive, but the podcast is dead. The podcast is not. <laughs> We're saying it's on hiatus. I'm not okay. going to call it totally dead. Perfect. You shouldn't. You never know. Um, you but, never know. But tell me about this. Um, you decided to stop doing the podcast. I know for you that it has been somewhat fruitful. Um, so just tell me a bit about, I guess, your time doing the podcast and what sort of brought it to its this moment of hiatus. Yes. Um, well, so early in my business, I was on lots of podcasts and that was a big marketing avenue for me. And I would say if you had done that same report that I ran you know, a year or two ago, five years ago, a lot of people were finding me from me being on other people's podcasts. And I loved it. I thought it was fun. I love to chit chat. It's like the best of all worlds. You don't have to be beautiful, but you can, if you want to. Um, (laughs) Indeed. But I just, I enjoyed it. It was easy. It was fun. And I was trying to blog and I was trying to, I was like, oh, everybody tells me I need content to market. Um, And as a lawyer, like we want to get things exactly right. And so anytime I would write a blog post, it would take me like all day it was just this huge gargantuan undertaking because I would have to do research and like make sure it was exactly right. Um, but going on a podcast was just fun and very easy. And um, I had started doing a little bit of video also, and I enjoyed that. And so I was like, huh, I think rather than blogging, I could just have a podcast. Um, so that's what really led me to start the podcast in 2016. And I did just a season at first. I did 12 episodes and I kind of batched it and I made it. It was almost like they're still there. The the first 12 episodes are really good. Um, They're like the course that that I was too lazy to make. So it was like, here's all the things you need to know as a baby business owner. Like, here's what you need to be taking care of, kind of helping. Just here's what you don't. You didn't go to law school. Here are all the things you don't know you need to be worried about. Um, So I did the first season, got really positive feedback. I enjoyed it. Um, so I decided to keep going. I think I took, I don't know, a couple months in between. Um, so the first couple of years I did seasons where we could kind of batch it. And it was like a lot of work, but in a short amount of time, um, then I did some interviews. It kind of, it went in different directions. There was a time when I was trying to, um, use the podcast to uplevel our clients. So if you listen to like kind of some of the middle episodes, it's a lot about like selling a business and like bringing in partners and some of the more like advanced legal topics. Um, but what I found when we looked at stats was, um, you know, most of our listeners were very early in their business journey. And so that those kinds of episodes weren't that appealing to them. Um, so we did, we got more strategic after Sarah Kate and the other marketing person I worked with, you know, we, we did more of an intentional marketing, ca- you know, content calendar, and we tried to tie it to promotions and this, that, and the other. And then the pandemic hit. And um, 
I'm sure anyone who is a podcaster saw their stats just kind of go in the toilet, like went swirling um, down. I mean, maybe Watch not, it happen. <laughs> maybe not. Maybe not you. No, I did. <laughs> totally not, did. I did. Mean, well, and we're my podcast was always very, very niche. I mean, legal for online business owners. It was, it was a pretty small following anyway. Um, but yeah, we just weren't seeing any growth or really much traction. Um, uh, so. And, and when I was looking at where people were coming from, um, it was not the podcast. It was still an amazing resource. People loved it. Um, but towards the end of last year, I felt like I was repeating myself like, oh, I've, I've kind of said all I have to say. Um, so especially for our audience, like it was an audience that was not necessarily growing with us. Um, we were getting new people who were still at that beginning business level, but I was like, legal for a new business is not that complicated. Like there's just not that much to say. Um, and it was taking a lot of my time and energy to plan out the episodes. Um, you know, sometimes we, like we did some things about Facebook ads and FTC regulations, you know, some things that were a little meatier that I would spend a day again, a day researching to make sure I got it right. So, um, it was a lot of the team's time. It was some expense because we hired the editing out. Um, and when I sat down with Sarah Kate and I was kind of like, tell me what 21, 2021 looks like for marketing. She was like, how do you feel about the podcast? Um, and I had been feeling a time crunch anyway, just pandemic, not as much childcare trying to do, trying to serve the influx of clients we've had really well. Um, the podcast was on my calendar, like it had to go out. So I always prioritized it. Um, but I was kind of like, you know, if I stopped doing it, I think it would be okay. And so we, we like sat with that for a couple months and like tried to, you know, we kept doing it, trying to see, and then, yeah, we decided to close it out. And so I recorded the last episode in December and I like, I was sure I was going to cry and just be really emotional. And it really wasn't I, like, it felt like, okay, this is like, this is time. This is like the, the end of a chapter, not necessarily in the end of the whole book, but, um, we, we have felt good about it. So, and people are still finding it. Like people still will message me like, oh, your podcast in it. I'm like 170 episodes, like go to town. There's, there's a lot of content there. Right. But right now I'm not making any more. No, <laughs> yeah. no. That was a long way of saying, yeah, it just felt like it was time. Well, and it doesn't sound like it just felt like it. It sounds like the numbers were yeah, showing I you. I mean, data. Right. That it was absolutely time for you to, um, that if you were feeling this, that there was yeah. sort of support there, real support there to, yeah. um, that gave you permission to just sort of leave it behind. Is there, yeah. can, is there anything that was like the straw that broke the camel's back? Like, was it, was it having Sarah Kate sort of confirm your suspicions or, you know, sort of seeing the data or was it that feeling that you had nothing left to say? Was it anything in particular that was sort of it or was it just a culmination of all those things? I think a big part of it was, um, I really, and I'll be open and honest about this. I really struggled with some depression and anxiety over the summer, um, with COVID, with no childcare, the kids at home trying to run a law firm and we were booming busy. Um, and so I was working like a crazy person, um, not feeling great. And so I started seeing a counselor and then also hired some business coaches. Cause I was like, I feel like I have a tiger by the tail and this is like, we can't sustain this. I've got to, you know, put some things in place so that we have more sustainable growth. Um, Cause we just kind of were saying yes to everything. Cause that's what you do when you're scared that there will never be another client. Um, 
But so like all of that, I was hearing the same. And so I was talking to a counselor, um, about not feeling like I was present at home and working too much and how, and, uh, I was kind of saying the same things with the business coaches and like, how can we kind of even out our client flow? And so both of them were kind of saying like, let's look at your calendar and where are you spending your time? And, you know, there was just this huge chunk, like almost all day on a lot of Wednesdays that I would have blocked out for the podcast. And they were like, okay, let's look at that. Like what is the ROI on that? And what do you, you know? And so it was kind of all of that together where it was just like, I was hearing from a lot of different sources that if my goal is to spend more time at home and be more present and provide really amazing value to fewer clients, but at a higher level, like all of these things kind of converged in the same uh, direction. And they were all kind of like, you have a limited amount of time and this is a very time intensive thing. So it just, yeah, that the, those were kind of the forces. And then again, looking at the numbers, it all just reinforced, like nothing was going in the opposite direction. I wasn't like, oh, but this is my favorite part of the week. Like I enjoyed it, but it wasn't something that I was devastated to lose either. So yeah, all of those things. What do you feel you have gained back since, mm. since stopping the podcast? Since stopping the podcast, it does feel like a little bit of a relief, like not to have that whole day in the middle of the week kind of hemmed in. Um, it's made scheduling easier for client calls. Um, I have a real goal this year to leave the office at five 30. Um, most days, <laughs> not every day, but most days. <laughs> um, so yeah, I don't, I, I would often last year get to the end of the day and I would have like, you know, eight client calls and three team meeting calls and then throw the podcast in there too. And so at five o'clock I would have been working all day, but not felt like I got anything accomplished. Um, and so then I have to like, look at my email and, oh, I need to review this contract and this, that, and the other. So that's when I was working until, you know, late into the evening. And so now I feel like I have better boundaries around my time where I could, I now have blocked off in the afternoon, like client work time. Um, so yeah, I, I do feel like I have a, a better, I have my arms around my time a little bit more. Nice. Well, congratulations. Yeah. Not, I'm not saying anyone who wants to start a podcast, don't do it. I have two good friends who are, <laughs> who are starting podcasts this year. I'm like, don't listen to me. <laughs> right. No, when podcasts or not, I think this is a wonderful lesson of, you know, you start something because it is beneficial. Like you see the benefits. It has yes. real benefits. You, you know, you get clients from it. You, mm -hmm. um, you grow your online presence. Like you do all these things, but there comes a time in your business where, I mean, actually consistently you need to look at yeah. what is happening because things shift and change as your business grows. The things that's going to help a business that's just getting started are not the things that's going to help you whenever you're multiple six figures into it. Like yeah. you're running a completely different business at that point. Yes. So I, this is a really important lesson of just checking everything consistently and making really smart uh, really smart decisions based on facts, you know, not just feelings or what you want to do <laughs> yeah. or what people are expecting you to do. But my fans right. love it when I do this or whatever it may be. It's about running a business. And and that's, that's, a, you made a business at, whoa, <laughs> my mouth today, though, you made a business decision. And yeah. um, no one can fault you for that. And a life decision. I mean, I think you mentioned earlier, like we all start businesses because we want a dream life for ourselves. Um, and so, you know, like your favorite ideal day exercise, like my ideal day was not working until midnight because I felt constantly behind. Um, so like I am the boss, no one is to blame, but me for that. And like, that is fixable. So this was kind of one, one brick in that wall. Well, congratulations, Autumn on that as well.
I'm Thank so you. excited to hear that that was the decision that you made and that's how you made it. And that would, it was so, uh, conglomerated. That's not the word. Like, what is the, like everyone sort of came in. Maybe. It was like all signs point to yes. Yes. That, <laughs> that happened. Right. And so it was an easy decision, even if it felt yeah. like sort of a heavy decision to have to make. Um, congratulations. I think that's, Thank I think it's exciting. Um, so you've removed this really sort of big part of your week, um, mm-hmm. which hopefully leaves you open to so many things. What are you most excited about doing in your business this year? So we have really rejiggered the way we work with new clients. And so I don't even know if I've told you this, Emily, mm-hmm. um, but as part of trying to really provide amazing value at a higher level, uh, we are limiting how many clients we take a month, which was so scary. And I told my, I told Brooke, I said, it's fine if like, we don't even sign a new client for three or four months. Cause we've got existing clients who are still keeping us very busy. We, we immediately filled up. It has not been a problem. Um, but so we have a new way of working with clients where we start with a legal planning session and we get our arms around their whole business. Um, and it just feels so good, um, to really be providing, you know, that's our favorite way to work with clients where we we see everything that they're doing. And oftentimes they, the thing they come to us wanting is not the thing they really need. And I don't say that like, oh, they're so dumb. Like they just don't have, like, we have a lot of experience in seeing how things go wrong. Um, so that has been really amazing. We've just gotten started with that in January. Uh, but I'm excited to see that kind of continue to grow. And I think we probably will be hiring another attorney later this year to kind of meet that demand. So we'll see. Um, yeah. And then Sarah Kate is just doing really cool digital marketing stuff on the contract side. So she's repurposing a lot of our old content, um, which is fun. Like I'm not having to recreate new things, but we have, we just have so many worksheets and templates and tools and things. Um, so she's making them pretty cause I'm not a, a graphic designer. So oh. she's kind of bundling them up in new ways and, um, coming up with really great ideas, um, to help newer business owners who, um, it doesn't make sense for their business to hire us one-on-one and I'm, I'm getting more comfortable saying that to people and not feeling badly about it, but saying we have tons of resources for you too. So oh, I'm excited about it. all of that. Congrats. Yeah. Congrats on like continuing to grow. Actually, congrats on all the growth that you've seen thus far. And then these plans for the new year sound super exciting. Yeah. I look forward to seeing how it all ends up rolling out. You'll be the first to know. (laughs) I'm excited. Perfect. Well, Autumn, thank you so much for coming to hang out with me. Why don't you tell everyone how it is that they can find you around the interwebs? Yes. So our website is the hub, awbfirm.com. That's where you can find our contract templates and more about our team and what we do. And then on all the social media, I'm just Autumn Whit Boyd. So you can find me Instagram and Facebook are where I hang out the most. Perfect. And final question for you, Autumn, what's making you feel most boss? So right now I have to say every morning I'm getting up and filling my Dolly Parton mug of coffee. (laughs) It says cup of ambition. And I've been sitting down with my journal and setting an intention for the day and kind of grounding myself. And that has been a game changer. Even when things are chaotic around me, as they often are with three children, um, that has been making me feel pretty boss. Oh, I love this. Autumn, it's so fun to catch up with you. Thank you for coming to hang out with me. Yes. Thank you for inviting me. 
What a treat to catch up with Autumn. And I love that our boss friendship goes alongside the launching and growing of both of our businesses and that we get to share this journey together. And know that if you are on the hunt for a business bestie of your own, this is the stuff that the Being Boss community is made of. There's... Together, there's a whole brood of business bosses gathering for Monday meetups to share wins and challenges, a book club for diving deep into business books and share experiences with each other, and a whole community platform for you to connect with other creatives like yourself, ask questions, and find just the tips you need to grow. It's a place filled with folks that you can share your business journey with too. You can learn more and join in by going to beingboss.club slash community. And until next time, do the work. Be boss. Sign up for the newsletter so you never miss an update. So if you're using anything other than Indeed for your hiring, you are wasting your time. You can hire great people faster with Indeed and only pay for results and get back time in your schedule. Indeed.com is a hiring site that helps you find quality candidates with Indeed Instant Match. Indeed searches through the millions of resumes in their database to help show you great candidates instantly, like that. And now, with Indeed's new Instant Match feature, you can view quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your description immediately after upgrading a job post. Unlike some other hiring sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility, delivering a quality shortlist faster, and there's no long-term contracts either. You can pause your account at any time and you only pay for what you need. And they help ensure that you get and show up at the right place at the right time in front of the right candidates. According to Indeed data, candidates invited to apply through Instant Match are three times more likely to apply to your job than those who only see it in search. So you want your quality shortlist fast? You need Indeed. Right now, our listeners get a free $75 credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash SPI. This is Indeed's best offer available anywhere. Get a free $75 credit at indeed.com slash SPI. That's indeed.com slash SPI. Offer valid through March 31st. Terms and conditions apply. So as you know, I've been in the podcasting space for a very long time now. Somebody came up to me the other day and they're like, Pat, dude, you're one of the old guys in the space. I love it. You've been doing this for so long. And I'm like, thank you. <laughs> anyway, I've been really lucky to produce some really successful podcasts, multiple podcasts and also courses. And part of my success is due to how particular I've been with some of the tools that I use. And in the podcasting space, my favorite tool is Buzzsprout. It is hands down the best tool for starting a podcast in 2021. It's amazingly easy to use as a podcast host. It's backed by a team that really cares about your success. They've been on the show before as guests, in fact. And like all podcasting hosting services, they get your show listed in all the major directories with I think like one click, you can make it happen, almost one click. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, et cetera. But what makes Buzzsprout different 
is they actually provide some really cool advanced tools that take the time to ensure everything is super easy to use. They have this thing called the magic mastering feature, which is so cool, which means literally you just flip a switch and every episode you upload is gonna be mastered properly, which matches all the levels in your show. So if you have somebody who's really soft, it's gonna bring it up. And that way, if a person's listening to your show in the car, they don't have to like turn it up when somebody's soft and then their ears blow out when you come back. It's just so, so good. All of this and so many features I didn't mention are available in Buzzsprout with plans starting at just $12 a month. They're an absolute wonderful partner and I've worked with them to offer my listeners an additional 33% more time on whichever plan you choose. Yes, if you go through our link, you get 33% more time added to your account. So let's make 2021 the year you start a podcast. Just head over to smartpassiveincome.com slash buzzsprout. Again, that's smartpassiveincome.com slash buzzsprout and I'll see you on all the directories. Let's do this. Yo, today's interview is one of the most inspiring interviews that I've had the pleasure of doing in such a long, long time. And, you know, I've done 460 of these prior to this episode, and it just might be up there with maybe even close to number one, to be honest. And so I cannot wait to share this story with you because our guest today, Daryl Stinson, is actually somebody who's been on the show before, but in a brief moment in time, in episode 433 of the Smart Passive Income Podcast, which is where we featured a number of black entrepreneurs in the SPI audience. And Daryl's story resonated with several of you, and uh, I wanted to bring him on the show to understand exactly what he has gone through, because he's gone through so much in his life, and now he helps others. And what I'm talking about is that he's had, in the past, a number of, of you know, I'm just gonna be upfront with you, suicidal thoughts, and not so great, takes on life and and himself. And I know a lot of us may have an understanding of what that might mean, but we unpack that a little bit. And we get into how he was able to eventually come out of this and be able to help others. And he has an organization that is truly inspiring. It's called secondchanceathletes.com. And he helps those who, especially those who were once athletes, even at the pro level, who don't believe that the rest of their life is worth living or is not going to be as great as the first half. And man, dude, this guy is just incredible. And what an amazing communicator, speaker. And how is this relevant to you? You have life experiences. You have a story. And no, it may not be so big. It may not be so, you know, down and dark, but it doesn't matter because it is what you say and how you craft this story that can help inspire and uplift others, no matter who it might be, whether it's athletes or kids or the person who you're serving in your business, it doesn't really matter. And I really, really ask Daryl some hard questions to follow up on how we can learn from his experiences, taking something that has happened in our lives and best shape it and turn it into something that can transform other lives too. And as you all know, I'm all about serving first and Daryl definitely does that. So Wow, I just, we're supposed to play the intro song, but I forgot because I just totally am in love with Daryl and everything he has to say. So let's play the intro. I'll do a quick sort of hello and then we'll get right into it. Man, this is gonna be great. Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, where it's all about working hard now so you can sit back and reap the benefits later. And now your host, one day he wants to host an internet late night show. Pat Flynn. What's up, y'all? Pat Flynn here, and welcome to session 461 of the Smart Passive Income Podcast. Thank you again so much for joining me today. And today we have Daryl Stinson, 
all you have to do is check out his website. You can find him at darylstinson.com. I already talked about him so much here in the front of the show, so I'm not gonna go too much into it because I wanna get, I want you to hear it. It's awesome. D-A-R-R-Y-L-L stinson.com or secondchanceathletes.com. This is definitely one of those that you might wanna pay it forward and, and share with others who you know might be affected by this kind of stuff. And he also has a book called Who Am I After Sports? Incredible, here he is. Daryl, welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, my friend. Thanks so much for being here today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's about to go down. This is the second time, actually, that we've heard you on the show. The first time you were in one of my favorite episodes and you've told this amazing story. We'll obviously drop the link in the show notes and stuff. And I just had to have you come on so I could talk to you personally about not just your story, but the result of your story and who it is that you're helping and how you're serving now. Tell us about what you do and then we'll kind of dig in and we'll go from there. Yeah, so I'm a speaker. I give hope to the hopeless and I'm a mental health advocate because I'm a suicide survivor. And I love working with speakers to help them spread their message, specifically heart-centered entrepreneurs. Through Second Chance Athletes, we're able to take athletes from a depressive grieving state to thriving and significance, which is what I went through. And we use an athlete's transition roadmap, and which is what my book talks about, Who Am I After Sports? And we help athletes really detach their identity from their activity, find their highest purpose, and, and really build that next dream. Why choose athletes? Obviously, there's everybody suffers through some sort of mental challenges. Why athletes? Why are they special to you? Because it was the help that I didn't have when I transitioned out of sports. So played Division One sports at Central Michigan University, you know, had emergency back surgery my freshman year. I wasn't supposed to play after that, but sports was my ticket out of the hood. It was the way that I was going to be famous, successful, rich, and and put my whole family out of poverty. And so I signed a liability waiver to be able to alleviate the university from an injury or a death. And then I begged them to let me come back and play on the team. They did that. I came back. I played. But I put my body through two years of drug addiction, manipulating the healthcare system, getting multiple epidural shots in my back. I mean, the story goes on and on. And I did so with some success. I managed to earn a starting position. I played for two years. And the opioids that I was taking was so much that it was thinning my blood to the point where every time I made contact on the field, my nose would bleed. Coaches saw that something was going wrong. They kicked me off the team. I was forced to deal with all that emotional baggage. And I was asking athletes the question, what do I do? And everyone was just saying, find your next passion. And I'm like, dude, football was my passion. And so I didn't want to live my future as if it was second best to my past. I didn't want to deal with the emotional pain that I was hiding from my rage on football. So I decided to turn inward and implode. And and that's where the suicide attempts come from. So I choose to work with athletes because I know what it's like to be successful externally, but inwardly failing. I know what it's like to have people admire you for your gifts, but not know that you're struggling on the inside. I know what it's like to tell people that you're struggling with mental health issues and they go, what do you have to worry about? You played on national television. You played with some of the best athletes in the world. And I said, that has nothing to do with how much I like me. And that's, that's what my passion is for working with athletes. I think a lot of people listening to this, although they might not be athletes, can relate to the idea of having lived through something coming out of it and then wanting to share it with others. Yeah. How did you begin to start doing that? when you yourself lived through something like this and now have wanted to help others too? Yeah, man. So I thought my only gift in the world was my athletic ability. <laughs> I didn't think I was good at anything else. 
And so when I survived my suicide attempt and had this really crazy turnaround in the psychiatric unit, I started to recognize that there was people around who could benefit from my story. I mean, I was a black man who had mental health challenges. And so nobody was really talking about real suicidal thoughts, especially not for minorities. And so I was like, I felt like I could make a difference. And I just started to share my story and tell people about, you know, counselors and (laughs) medication and dealing with these real depressing thoughts. And, you know, it was something about seeing my story help others that let me know I have to do more of this. How did you start sharing that story? I think a lot of people want to share this story. And you said that you just started talking about it. How did you start talking about it? How did you start to get people to listen? Yeah, you know, I always tell people this because oftentimes, you know, I work with speakers helping build businesses. And oftentimes the question is, well, where's my opportunity? And I say every conversation you have is a stage. I think we get so caught up in wanting paid gigs or the biggest podcast opportunities that we forget why we get in this in the first place, which is to help people. And I'm a huge component of being successful with what you have where you are. And so my first stage was the person that I talked to on the football team who was like, where you been at, Stints? And I was like, well, actually, here's where I've been. at. I just came out of the psychiatric unit. Whoa, man, what? Tell me about that. And we start that conversation. So my first stage was people just asking me where I've been at. And I took that as an opportunity to create awareness around mental health challenges. And that led to, hey, you should share, you know, with this sports team. And then I started with some high school teams and then I spoke at my alma mater. And then you speak, you do a good job and people ask you to come back. And that's kind of how that journey started. How do you get comfortable sharing such a personal story about yourself to others? There's often a worry of, being maybe looked down upon because of certain things that maybe you have done or, you know, this is this was a big struggle for me when I got laid off. I almost was embarrassed about it. Yeah. And so so how do you get comfortable sharing that story? The same way you grow a business, the same way you get good at anything, you realize that something isn't working and you switch it up. So I realized that being insecure, being afraid, being timid was not working for the maximum impact I could have as a speaker. And I was terrible. I know I sound awesome now. It's either the microphone or or the fact that I've had a couple of practice being a two-time TEDx speaker. But I'm telling you, I hated the sound of my voice. I used to be so embarrassed to speak, Pat, you're going to laugh at me, that Um, When we did icebreakers where you go around the room and say, hey, what's your name and your favorite animal? Like I would get up, get up and fake go to the bathroom so that they could skip me. That's how much I hated my voice. I can kind of relate to that. though. (laughs) You you see what I'm saying? I made me nervous and I hated it. And so, you know, here's what started to change. Number one, I realized that my insecurities was creating my very fear, right? So in other words, I was like, man, nobody's going to listen to me. They're going to tune out. They're not going to engage. Nobody's going to apply what I say. And therefore that's what was happening. It was all these insecurities coming through my speaking. And I had somebody and I reached out to him. He co-leads with a very significant figure, Stephen Furtick. And he comes up behind Stephen Furtick. And I said, man, how do you do that? How do you come behind this great speaker and close out when nobody's like, everybody's like, ah, second best coming. You know, he said, you know what, Daryl? He said, I started focusing more on being helpful than being impressive. And when he said that, I was like, that's my problem. I'm so worried about how I look, how I sound, how I feel that I forget that I'm there for them, not for me. And I can't truly serve them if I'm really just trying to serve myself. I can't really give 
affirmation, encouragement, motivation, inspiration, if all I'm trying to do is get affirmation. And so that is one shift that I made that really helped me to start stepping in more powerfully. And then let me share one more because I think this is important. We all get into this, this business of sharing our message, whether that's podcasting, speaking, whatever our platform is, because we want to help people. And I always said that the quickest way to break insecurity is effectiveness. Okay. So I'm insecure about speaking and I'll never forget. I'll go to a youth conference and I was speaking about mental health and stuff. And afterwards, you know how this is. People come up to you and want to connect with you, say, thank you, shake your hand, do that type of thing. And towards the end of the line, there was this teenage girl. She comes up to me and she's shaking and trembling. She pulls up her wristband and she goes, my, my parents dropped me off at the orphanage last year and they never came back. She said, I couldn't understand why they didn't want me. And I've been cutting myself ever since because I figured something has to be wrong with me and I deserve pain. She said, and I never told anyone, but it was something about hearing your story as a successful athlete and your battles with mental health that gave me the strength to come out about my struggle. Wow. And I said, I've got to do more of this. So I always tell people, if you struggle with fear, insecurity, get in front of the people that you're called to serve and help and help them. And when their success happens, when their breakthrough happens, you're not worried about you anymore because you realize that the struggle is worth it. Thank you for that story. I'm remembering specific moments, too, where I've met people who I didn't even know who had been served in one way, shape or form. And it's interesting because you can't give up anymore after you start seeing that. And it can happen on a, on a macro level, it can happen in a just a thank you, but it's not gonna happen unless you put yourself out there. Mm-hmm. When it comes to storytelling, how do we tell effective stories? You being a two-time TEDx speaker, what within a story can get people to connect, to feel like they can then open up to you and take action and feel comfortable and learn? I wholeheartedly believe I'm going to give you an answer that's not normal, okay? Let me do it through story. I heard Eric Thomas speak at a private breakfast, and the guy was just blowing it up. And I'm sitting here, and we're all asking Q&A, and he said something that answers the question you just asked me. He said, a lot of you guys think that I'm better speakers than you are. He says, in reality, I'm just more free than you are. What he meant by that is he had learned to be himself And it was actually that that helped them be successful as a speaker, that helped them be better at storytelling. And so if we want to get better at storytelling, I can give you, you know, story brand framework or tell you about emotion and all that stuff. But none of the strategies matter if you don't know and love you. You have to learn how to be comfortable in your own skin. And when you're comfortable, your audience is comfortable. We buy into you. If you want to get into vibrancy and frequency and all that, the truth vibrates the fastest. Authenticity vibrates the fastest. And so people can tell when you're not being authentic. You want to tell great stories? Learn how to be yourself because that's the most interesting version of you. So be yourself. How do you do that? You learn your weaknesses, you learn your strengths, you learn your quirkiness, you learn the things that are so unique about you that makes you you. Like for me, it's my my high-pitched laugh, right? So when I tell a story, the story could be boring. I could get off my five, you know, uh, layers of a story. But when I do that laugh, 
it's something about it that brings people back into the message. So good. Yeah. And it's different for every person. Be yourself. Add emotion into your story. People are always looking for when the character changed. That's the recipe, man. But my story is not that interesting. <laughs> but I'm putting myself in the heads of oh, those yeah. who are listening to this. Oh, you know, yeah. I mean, you know my, my story is not that interesting or I don't have charisma. Mm-hmm. I'm not as exuberant as that person or I don't have a high pitched laugh like Daryl. I don't, I don't have anything unique about me. I can't do this. Mm-hmm. He that thinks he can, he that thinks he can't, both are correct. If you think your story isn't interesting, you're going to talk yourself into believing that. But I can tell you that the people on the other side of your story aren't thinking that. You don't need, and it's so funny because I have one of those stories and, and people say that to me like, oh, I, I'm not, I don't have this suicidal story. I never sold drugs. I've never done all the stuff you did and never been as low and nobody wants to listen. I'm like, but what is your story? You've learned something. You have, le- it doesn't have to be this like sob story. <laughs> it can be a success story. It could be a learning moment. You can tell a story about cooking and how you had fun and people can relate to it. The point is not to be impressive. The point is to be helpful. So my question to that person who says, but I don't have a, a, a amazing story, a heartfelt story. I would say, do you have helpful information? Tell your story. Tell me about your foundation. I want to learn more about it and how you got it started because when you start to realize that you're making an impact on one person, mm-hmm. you begin to realize that you can make an impact on thousands, tens of thousands, potentially millions of others. I'd yeah. love to know how you were planning to do that with, with your organization. Yeah. So five years after my suicide attempt, I had finally got to this place where I wouldn't trade my life that I had built for an NFL contract. And I noticed that that was not the same as peers, former athletes that I knew. They were still bragging about their sports days and they called them the glory days. And for me, my glory days were in front of me, not behind me. And I was like, holy crap, how did I get here? And then not. And I started to notice that, man, I had did some things to reflect, to learn self, that to process my athletic experience that they hadn't done. And I was like, man, I want to help them because I didn't believe that anybody should live their current life as if it's second best to their former life. That's depressing. <laughs> you know. And I always say it's like it's like you getting married, getting divorced and then getting remarried and wishing you could be with your ex. Like this is the worst way to live. And so I just started to have this conversation with athletes and say, hey, man, you know, tell me about your career. And they will tell me about their sports career and it'd be all excited and happy. And I'm like, OK, well, tell me about some of your dreams, some of your, your future. And they'd be like, oh, you know, and it was like the energy shifted. And I was like, let's fix that. (laughs) And they were looking at me like, can we, you know, like what's better than being on national television? And then we take them through this process, which is now our athletes transition roadmap. I didn't call it that then. It was just like, what's next? You know, trying to figure it out and started to see some change in the lives of people started to see people go, oh, my God, I didn't know that this was something that I would be passionate about more than I was passionate about at sports. And we start telling those stories. And as we told those stories, more people come up and go, man, I'm depressed, man. I didn't know that this is what I was dealing with. And and that's kind of where it began. And just one thing led to another. And here we are today trying to meet the demand of the pandemic. Because I always say it this way. I said this on the Fox interview that athlete transition was a problem pre-pandemic. And the pandemic just multiplied it, just poured gasoline on the fire. So we're just doing our best. And there's other players we run with. That's how it happened. Where can we go to check out the the foundation and help support? 
secondchanceathletes.com. All the information is there. You can volunteer, you can give, you can advocate, <laughs> whatever. If you know athletes that need help, get the resource in their hand. We got lots of free blogs and materials. We got stuff for parents as well that are dealing with, you know, kids are trying to live through their children. And so we've got all that stuff. We co- cover it from a holistic perspective. That's amazing. Thank you for, for doing what you're doing. How did you build it into the foundation from where you were as a person just sharing this story and trying to help others more on an individual basis? How did you make it formalized in this way? Yeah, yeah. So are you talking about the legalization process of the business? Yeah, like if I wanted to create a foundation and help people in a similar way or, you know, create something that wasn't just like my blog, but, you know, (laughs) something like what you have, how, how, how does one go about doing that? The quickest way to be successful at anything is find somebody who's already doing it and ask for directions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's what I did. And so I am king of like, people say, you haven't walked a mile in my shoes. And I was like, cause I don't want to, <laughs> I'd rather learn from the mile you walked. <laughs> and so that was it, man. I just reached out to people. Um, Athlete Network was huge for us. They've got over 5 million athletes in their database. They were already doing what we're doing, making the mistakes, had the hard knock lesson. I reached out to them. Uh, David Meltzer was a huge help to where we are today and just started reaching out to people and they formalized it you know, submitted our nonprofit status, got it legalized. And then I just had to learn how to uh, understand the bylaws and run the organization. So I say this way, man, there's, I surround myself with people who are smarter than I am and they help me look good. (laughs) I love it. Thank you for that. You would, you had mentioned that when you go to these athletes and they start considering their previous life or their career as the best part of their, their life, the glory days, like you said, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think a lot of people listening to this might consider their time prior to today mm-hmm. in the same way. Absolutely. So how do you coach a person? How do you help them understand that there is so much more to be excited about? And how do you help a person navigate what their next great passion might be? Oh my gosh. Thank you for asking that question. This is why you're the man. That's <laughs> good questions. Thank you, Gerald. All right. Five steps. Here's the roadmap. Okay. Acceptance, belief, discover, pursue, persist. Each one is important. Okay. Acceptance is all about letting go of the past. It's the five stages of grief on steroids, <laughs> right? How do you fast track the five stages of grief? You you read that chapter in my book, okay? We talk about how to process your pain in your past, which is very important. I always say it this way, unprocessed pain becomes ill-processed pain, okay? We tend to not want to review our past or review our pain because we think that we have to relive it not realizing that there's gold that we can get from it. Okay. So I teach you how to do that in the acceptance phase. Number two is belief. You know, this. it's all about mindset. You cannot achieve what you do not believe. How do you elevate your mindset to really, truly, authentically believe that your future is going to be better than your past? Okay. Number three is discovery. You have to figure out what it is. This is Victor Frankl's man search of meaning. This is Simon Sinek's why. This is anything around purpose. You've got to figure out what's that highest purpose in life. That's going to be the why that drives everything you do. Okay. Accept, believe, discover. Number four, you have to persist. You have to go get it. Now we're talking goal setting, disciplines, morning routines, calendar management, delegation, all the success principles that help you to go after a thing. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now remember, before you get there, you got to do the early work. You can't chase another high. You've got to process, you got to believe, you got to discover. Now you go after it. And, and, And there's a level because it has to not just be good in theory. It has to be better in reality. <laughs> in other words, I got to become a better speaker than I was an athlete. 
<laughs> All right. So that's how we persist. And then the, the, or that's how we pursue. And then the fifth one is persist. Okay. So we got to accept, believe, discover, pursue, and then persist. And this is all mental healthy habits, man. Oh my gosh. I cannot wait to we as entrepreneurs really figure out that you do not have to sacrifice your mental health on the altar of success, that you can win at work and succeed at life. That's what this is all about. How do you develop mental healthy habits so that you are okay as you pursue and persist towards your dreams? How do you balance that with this hustle culture that we've become accustomed to where we do feel like that we have to work harder. And as an entrepreneur, I know that there is no end to the workday. I have to be very disciplined with that, but I could always do one extra hour or I could always sacrifice one extra hour of sleep or I could always just like, okay, kids, go play with the iPad. I got this thing to create or, or thing to do. How does one manage that reality? You realize that your perception is skewed. <laughs> In other words, you think that that extra hour is going to help you, not if you're at 60% of energy. <laughs> The point is energy management, which is a higher goal than time management. And that's what the successful people have figured out is that, hey, man, me punching in three extra hours on 60% energy and caffeine and a foggy head and attitude is not very productive than me blocking out my time, being completely focused, doing deep work, like Cal would say, and really getting after it and doing things strategically. Work smarter, not harder but work harder at working smarter. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. I love what you said. Energy management is more important than time management. Oh, yeah. Because you could do nothing during that time and go nowhere. Of the five parts of the transformation, which one seems to be the most difficult for most people, at least for those who you work with? It's a tie. It is a tie between acceptance and discovery. Okay, because I, I would imagine persistence and 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 like th those things athletes are inherently good at, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, managing their their time and you know focusing and and going all in. But the two that you mentioned, why do you think those are such big struggles? Acceptance because we don't want to go there, dude. I don't want to revisit that. I don't want to think about how the pandemic took from me. I don't want to think about what happened to me as a child. I don't want to think about my failures. I don't want to think about that stuff because I made the mistake of attaching my identity to my activity. I cannot separate from what happened to me or what I did from who I am. And so I don't want to go there because then I'll start thinking, man, I was a terrible person, man. I was abused. I was this, I was that. And I start to attach labels to my identity. That's just not true. It's an event. It's not an identity. And, and so that one's the hardest. <laughs> to get somebody to say, hey, let's go on this journey through your past is like is, is is extremely difficult to do because you have to convince them that it's worth processing and that they're not just going to come out with more pain, but they'll also come out with treasure. That's the hardest thing. And, and you know what? I'm going to say that's harder than purpose discovery. <laughs> I'm sure it doesn't happen overnight either. Like it just like clicks, right? It takes some time to process and like how like what questions are you asking them to help them understand how to sort of extract who they were and that doesn't determine who they're going to become. Yeah. So every situation is different and it does take time. But when you've done it time and time again with people, you learn how to kind of make it happen faster. And not, like, I can't promise that on the front end, but the number of time where we've done one or two sessions with somebody and they've like got healthy conclusions about things that happened there in the past is like more times than not. <laughs> so I, I would say when it's no different than when you build a business, you you have the blueprint, right? So can you promise in 60 days you'll make 6K? Not necessarily, but it's 
kind of likely if you kind of know what you're doing, right? Yeah, yeah. It's the same way with this emotional care. So you can do it rather fascinating. One of the things that I always encourage people to ask themselves is what conclusion am I making about what happened to me? What did this event make me think? Okay. We do not take inventory of our thoughts. It is like one of the most unhealthy things ever in life. And we think that we're avoiding it, but we're not. Subconsciously, we make the wrong conclusions. So when I slow down enough and I go there and I ask myself that question, okay, when this happened, I felt like I was a failure. And then you ask yourself the question, well, is that true? When you see it on paper and it's out of your head, you're like, heck no, that's not true. Watch this. I'm not a failure. I had a moment where I've learned. I had a moment where I made a mistake, but I actually can be successful. I actually am called to this. I actually do have what it takes. And we start to make better conclusions. That's just one example. I once heard that with anything, you either get the result you want or the lesson you needed. And I think that that fits in perfectly with, I think that was James Wedmore, just to give credit. But this has been amazing, Daryl. And, and, and you are an amazing guest and speaker, obviously. I'd love to know, as we finish up here, your TEDx talks, how have they helped your career? How have they helped you spread your message? And how might one consider doing one themselves? Oh, great question again. I'm going to say people a lot of time, okay? It's not just the TEDx talk, just like it's not just the podcast. There's a strategy behind it, okay? But the TEDx talk did help me go from being a unseen and kind of like, who's this guy to we know this guy. And and then it's a, it's a power play, right? Two-time TEDx speaker, Yay, bring him on the podcast. I'm sure he's good, you know, <laughs> two-time TEDx talk, you know. And so it is a credibility. It has helped establish me. And you guys got to know me. I'm trying not to tear up, sorry. Uh, the impact that I've been able to have because of the TEDx stage is, is crazy. My first TEDx talk experience was terrible. I don't want to throw them under the bus. But I didn't do my best. And it was not my best talk. The material is pretty good. And obviously, we're our own worst critic. The first six months, or excuse me, first nine months, it only had 30,000 views. When the pandemic hit, because so many people were dealing with rejection, it jumped up over 300,000 views in three weeks. <laughs> Everybody's dealing with rejection. And I started to get messages at two o'clock in the morning from people all over the world, Pakistan, the UK, I mean, Everywhere. And I'm like, I don't know how they saw it. And they they all said the same thing. Thank you. And I'm like, all right, I'm doing more TEDx talks because they get the marketing and they're, you know, easy on the search engine. And and so if you want to get a TEDx talk, here's the one of my biggest tips. It's not about the story. It's about the idea. TEDx is about ideas that spread. I know a ton of people who are, I have this amazing story, this amazing product, this amazing service. I want to do a TEDx. And I said, okay, well, what's the idea? What's the idea we're spreading? The, the amazing product, the amazing story. And I'm like, no, it's not the story. It's the idea. So for me, it wasn't my story of drug addiction and selling drugs and football. It was this idea that rejection is our friend and not our enemy. You see the difference? When you find your idea, you put yourself in position to be on the TEDx stage. Beautiful. And there's obviously resources to go and figure out technically how to do that. And we're not going to talk about that here today. But I think that more important than anything is this framework that you might need before you even go and pitch this idea. Absolutely. And we'll drop in the links to the TEDx Talks in the show notes. Tell me about your book really quick. Who's it for? Why should we all read it? 
my book is for anyone who's in the season of transition, whether you're an athlete or a former military veteran, or you just went through a divorce. If you need to learn how to transition from one thing to the next in a powerful way with a proven roadmap, this is for you. Where can we go get it? You can go to my website, DarylStinson.com, SecondChanceAthletes.com. It's on Amazon. It's everywhere you know, where books are sold. So uh, you guys can, can grab it there. Thank you. And what's the name of it? We, we, we didn't drop the name of it yet. Did I not drop the name? See, no, I got so excited. I got you, though. It's Who Am I After Sports? An Athlete's Roadmap to Discover New Purpose and Live Fulfilled. The forward is by NBA analyst Chris Broussard. It's got some endorsements from Jack Canfield, David Meltzer, some great people that say it's a great material. So go check it out. Daryl, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. And it's been great to have uh, an actual conversation with you here. And thank you for all that you're doing. Thank you for your story. Thank you for your energy. And I cannot wait to hear more about you. And if there's anything we can do to help you, please just don't be a stranger. Always feel free to reach out. Awesome. Keep doing what you're doing, man. Thanks for having me. And you guys, choose something. What are you going to do differently today as a result of what you heard? Make a decision. And that's why we do this, to help people. So we want to see you move forward and reach out to us. Let us know if something today impacted your life. We'd love to celebrate your success. Daryl, where can we reach out to you on social? Oh, man. Stinson Speaks. S-T-I-N-S-O-N-S-P-E-A-K-S. All right. Go find it. I my my name wrong. Let them know that you heard this episode. Let them know you loved it if you did. And and tag me too, because I want to see it as well, at Pat Flynn Stinson Speaks. Thank you so much, Daryl. We appreciate you and keep up the great work. Wow, you talk about life changing, right? Not just for Daryl, not just for his second chance athletes, but for all of us to hear this story and to hopefully realize that no matter who we are, we have the ability to step forward and help and serve others. And hopefully Daryl has given us a little bit of inspiration, motivation, and some very specific advice on exactly how we can do that and to also get out of our own head sometimes and out of our own way in order to do this and, and serve others. And, and like I said in the beginning, it's always from a place of service. And when you serve first, of course, your earnings are a byproduct of how well you serve others. That's a Pat Flynn original quote right there. But anyway, Daryl, thank you so, so much for coming on the show again for a second time and with the heat for sure. So DarylStinson.com, SecondChanceAthletes.com, his book, Who Am I After Sports? And of course, all the links are available on the show notes page, SmartPassiveIncome.com slash session 461. Thank you so much for listening in today. Make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss more episodes, motivational, inspirational, educational, informative. I'm here to help and serve you in all different kinds of ways because this this land of entrepreneurship and business, it's a tough one. You know, sometimes it feels like that, you know, that Oregon Trail, right? I remember that video game back in fourth grade. It was tough. And sometimes you don't make the right decisions, but, you know, kind of like a video game. With business, you can start over and try again and learn from your mistakes. And I'm so grateful that we get to connect with other people to share their journey as well on this trail we call entrepreneurship. Thank you so much for coming in. I appreciate you. Thank you for all the reviews. And until next week, keep crushing it. Cheers, take care. And as always, Team Flynn for the win. Peace out. Thanks for listening to the Smart Passive Income Podcast at www.smartpassiveincome.com. So we're trying something new with the SPI Podcast that we've been working on for a while now, and I'm so excited to tell you about it. 
We partnered with our friends at Supercast and just launched a new podcast experience called the SPI Podcast Premium Pass. And now you can sign up for it today. The SPI Podcast Premium Pass is a paid subscription that gives you all the content you know and trust and also gives you perks that we've never offered before. You'll get access to all SPI Podcast episodes a day before they're published anywhere else. And you're also gonna get them completely ad-free. And soon we're gonna start publishing new weekly content that will only be available to subscribers, all for only $5 a month. It only takes a few minutes to set up the SPI Podcast Premium Pass and start listening with your favorite podcast player. Membership is super flexible with no commitment required, so you're in full control of your subscription at all times, and it's a subscription that you can feel good about. By subscribing to the Premium Pass, you'll be supporting the SPI team, which allows us to continue to produce valuable content, including new podcasts for you. We're so excited to be offering the subscription, and we hope that you'll join us. Sign up for the SPI Podcast Premium Pass today at smartpassiveincome.com slash premium. Again, that's smartpassiveincome.com slash premium. Hope to see you on the Premium Pass. This week's episode has come to an end, but the fun doesn't have to stop here. If you have any questions, suggestions, or feedback, head over right now to Twitter and Facebook and like, share, and get involved. Join us next time. Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.